from the north, citizens of the world, and welcome. Finally, we're going to examine a subject I wanted to cover for years. And now, as one scientific study after another is bombarding our horrible, deluded, medieval and backwards paradigm that anyone above 30 has been polluted with, Talk about misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, but which fortunately is being cracked open by these frequent alt-CTRL deletes. There's no more postponing and delaying this, so let's just seize the opportunity to look into Galileo's telescope and see for ourselves. And just what am I referring to? Among the abundance of unacknowledged truths in this our contemporary dumbed-down culture of lies, illusion, censorship and propaganda? Psychedelics, aka hallucinogens, aka psychoactive drugs, aka entheogenes, aka psychotomematics. A beloved child has many names is an old Norwegian saying, and this particular child has been smeared, banned, shunned, oppressed, maligned, slandered, outcasted and demonized for so long that to the general population it will take generations before the damage is restored and we can finally behold it with neutral, fair and honest eyes, especially compared with its evil bandit cousin alcohols. Now, when I learned that my old friend Dr. Harald Erlandsson, incidentally son of scientist Dr. Erlander Haraldsson, who's renowned for his research on reincarnation, when I heard that Haralder is now all in on this exciting, mind-bending wave of novel research into the field of psychedelics, I did not hesitate to invite him back to the show to have a chat about the matter. Here's a teaser. The fins, the laps, they, they were using that, but even more so the red fly agaric mushroom. Because they, the reindeers, because the Greeks are very clever about this, because they honor that all these, um, these uh, psychedelics or these sacred medicine, they were found by the animals that they heard. Mm. So they often connected with the, the god of the goat. And in the north, it's the reindeer, because the reindeers can smell the fly agaric mushrooms a mile off. So they, they were used to find them. Ah, so <laughs> no wonder Rudolf had a red nose. Yes. But, <laughs> but it's interesting because, you know, there's more and more people now. And I guess Joe Rogan is probably the most famous expression of this new idea that's emerging, that all the world's spiritual traditions and religions actually are founded upon some kind of psychedelic revelation. If you look at the modern research into the psilocybin, or the equivalent of, of ayahuasca, is that it is similar to what we call kind of a spiritual experience, even for the atheists. About two-thirds of atheists who have a spiritual experience with psilocybin, they become spiritual people. It's a Phrygian cap, isn't it? I mean, uh, Santa Claus has it. Yes, exactly. And he's red like the fly agaric mushroom. Yeah, yeah. There's many people who have uh, drawn connections between that. Like, yeah, yeah. there's a shamanic root to that aspect of the myth. Obviously, 
Santa Claus is based on on the saint who lived in Turkey, the uh, Saint Nicholas. But yeah. somehow this myth has amalgamated together with the more magical yeah. aspect of it. Which it's an is, old drug, like everything in Christianity, like even the modern day theologians. They say, well, Christianity is an amalgamation of different stories, mm. and almost none of these stories are original. It is a repetition yeah. of old myths and stories. When it comes to legalization, the Americans are going to be the first. So yeah. I think the FDA assumes that before the end of next year, MDMA is going to be legal. Wow. Doctors are then allowed to use it, with psychologists allowed to use it. And this will lead a transformation in the quality of health service. We are talking about multiple effects, not only mental health issues. We are coming to because you were talking about the battle of the of the businesses, because yeah, yeah. psychedelics is the biggest threat to modern day psychopharmacology. It is, but there are new movements. It seems the big pharma now wants to go into this market, just as they want to do with cannabis. Yes, yes, yes. They, they, are, they are so dead scared. They have to be along because almost all <laughs> the antidepressants and anxiolytics are going to be out within ten years. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's is join or, or die. <laughs> Yes, they're coming in here kicking and screaming. Yes. But uh, then again, you know, if they can get monopoly and maybe they can start getting... Exactly. Yes, and they can... And this is one of the threats, is that how are people going to do a monopoly of uh, something you can pick in your lawn in the autumn? Cannabis. As I mentioned earlier, it can cause psychosis, but it, it can... All... Not cause, trigger, right? No, cause. Cause, it can cause. Possibly cause. It will trigger, but may cause... Oh. But also, uh, in a very small percentage, but it also causes something that is called be kind of like a lethargy. People lose all their drive. They, yeah. they, they become completely flat. Yes. And I've seen a number of clients that have used heavily cannabis for a few years, and their life is never the same. They never, they're like car without a petrol. There's no direction. There's no meaning. There's no yeah. drive. There's no nothing. Yeah, that's a classical. Uh, no wonder uh, the hippies loved it. Yeah. So, let's get to know our guest, who's one of those with a supernatural CV. So, we'll just stick to the highlights in order to deflate this introduction. Haralder Erlandsson is a doctor of medicine, master of science and clinical neurology, doctor of clinical nutrition and member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Hailing from Iceland, he's lived long parts of his life in India and UK. He's worked as a consultant psychiatrist, a forensic settings psychiatrist, a medical doctor and hospital CEO. He attended the University College of London's Institute of Neurology within the Faculty of Brain Sciences in 91 and 92, where he got his Diploma of Clinical Neurology. Between 96 and 2000, he achieved his MRC Psych as a consultant psychiatrist from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And between 98 and 01, got his Master of Science in Mental Health from University of London. Additionally, he's trained in various techniques of hypnosis, including past life regression and life between life therapy, is a scientific acupuncturist trained with Felix Mann, a practitioner of Cyriac's system of orthopedic medicine, of the EMDR technique for trauma therapy, of body-oriented psychotherapy, and in using Jungian techniques to integrate fractured parts as well as many internal parts of self-models. 
Some of the work he's done is as consultant psychiatrist for the Sussex Partnership Trust between 96 and 06 at the Community Mental Health Service and between 06 and 09 for the Signet Hospitals, Medical Director for Signet Healthcare, between 04 and 12 as Director for Helios 648 Limited. Between 9 and 12 as consultant psychiatrist at Helen Keller Ward for Partnerships in Care. Between 12 and 19 as CEO and medical director for Iceland's most famous clinic, the HNLFI Health Clinic Anspa. And between 19 and 21 as chief psychiatrist for HSU South Iceland Mental Healthcare. Dr. Erlandson is something of an odd duck within the field of psychiatry. He's typically described as an inspirational leader, a great teacher, a trusted colleague, and a compassionate therapist whose approach is simultaneously humane and professional, to the delight of his patients and a welcome support for his team members. He is even a whistleblower, having reported corruption in the Icelandic health system, despite great personal cost. The reason he went into psychiatry to begin with was to better understand inner experiences in stable people and in illness for trauma processing and wisdom emerging. He has integrated in his approach traditional spiritual practices like shamanic animals techniques, soul retrieval, spirit release methods, microcosmic circulation and all sorts of dream work. In 15, Haralder hooked up with author and psychotherapist Keith Hagenbach and co-authored a book called The Man Who Drew Triangles, which you can learn more about in our former show with him, called Insanity vs. Spirituality. Indeed, one of his main passions is sacred geometry, especially in terms of ley lines, etymology, sacred sites and large-scale geography. At a personal level, his additional interests are myths, symbolism, dream time, shamanic journeys, yoga and meditation, astrology, mantras, lucid dreaming, and esoteric afterlife lore, to name some, and is a student and initiate of several traditional esoteric vehicles like Rosicrucianism, co-masonry including both Swedish and Scottish Rite, Martinism, Pythagoreanism, and was recently elected as head of the Icelandic Theosophists. He is also a student of Oriental esoteric traditions, among others Sri Shinmoy, Sri Vidya, Shankara of Kanchipuram, Yogananda and Self-Realization Fellowship, Sri Anna Subramanian Ayer and Ramakrishna Mission, and the Icelandic adept Sigvaldi Almarsson. And his main practice is esoteric tantra, mental physics and breathing exercises. And now his spiritual and professional interests have converged with his work on psychedelics, which among others is manifesting in the groundbreaking international conference Psychedelics in Medicine to be held in Reykjavik, Iceland on January 12th and 13th, 2023, which you can read more about at the website psychedelicsiceland.com. Welcome back to Forum Borealis, Haraldur. Thank you. It's not that long since we talked. No. <laughs> but I just had to have you back immediately because of the super important work you do. 
in uh, this field that we're going to discuss today. And like we just agreed, we'll start discussing it historically. Now, let me start this off by telling you when I became aware of the weird connections between psychedelica and spirituality. And that was, you remember the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Oh, yes. So for the longest time, they were kept secret. They were kept secluded from the public. Yes. Somehow the Israeli government authorized the Catholic, the Vatican, to have their their claws on this. Yeah, yeah. Right? Incredible, important historical stuff. But there was this research team. I think they were sitting on it for 30 years or something. Yeah, yeah. And one of the guys, John Allegro. Exactly. Dr. Allegro, right? He, fortunately for us, he was a dissident. Yeah, yeah. So what he did was that he came out to the public about what these things contained. And in the beginning, yeah, great. Oh, one of us, uh, because of him, they can't keep keep it on the wraps. But yeah. then it seemed that he went far off the deep end. He started publishing books about <laughs> his uh, interpretation of the, this thing, uh, which basically said that the early Christians, Jesus was a cult leader for a mushroom worshipping yeah. sect, basically. And everybody thought he was crazy. But this book, I think, came out in the 70s. And after 50 years, I think he's been vindicated to a far extent. Any comment on this? Oh, yes. There are um, quite a few early references that support this argument. Um, that not, not only Christians, but obviously the Greeks and the Romans, they, in their mystery cults, they were all using psychedelics. So they were no different. They were the same as, as all of them. But there are some interesting references uh, from early on. Yeah. I think it's, um, uh, I have the reference if you're interested, but it doesn't really matter. There, there are multi multiple references about um, uh, psychedelics in early Christianity with um, the uh, European roots of Egypt and Greece and Christianity, and also the basis of Hinduism and Buddhism related to psychedelics, <clears throat> and how it's now kind of coming through, uh, through Brazil and Mexico and Colombia. Yeah, you sent me one book called, let's see, let me look at the... There, is a, there are references from Iranus, uh, the Bishop of Lyon in the second century, who is, who is kind of defending uh, the view that Christians are just uh, hippies that take mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> and condemning them. And he, is, he argues, no, no, the church is not doing it. It's only the, the Gnostic churches that do that. Yeah, among others, the, the, the heretic churches. Yes. But you sent me the, the book of uh, Dr. Brown called The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity. Yes, yes, yes. I think that there's a, been a lot of interest in it because if you look at um, uh, like the tree of life and the, the tree of good and evil and all that, and also um, kind of picture decorations uh, up in, until the 13th century, up to the inquisitions, it is clear that uh, there was knowledge within European Christianity that the sacred drink, the, 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 uh, the sacrament, was in fact muscles. This is your body, this is your blood. Yes. 
So this is the drink on, on the substance of the mushrooms. And in fact, in many cultures in India and even in Mexico, the psilocybin mushroom is called the flesh of God. So, so the, when the church today uses wine and bread, yes. that's a replacement of the original substances. What, what uh, do we know or think that they originally used in the sacrament? Well, it, we have the, obviously the Christianity is built primarily on um, Osirian cult. And in the final stage of the passes through the underworld as, as the neophyte comes out of the seven or 12 houses of darkness, he meets the goddess under a tree and their offerings and there is drink and bread, wine and bread. But um, the beer and the wine uh, of the ancient Egyptians was a psychedelic drink. Yeah, uh, but, but you say it's primarily based. I mean, I think it's safe to say that Christianity was incorporating many, many, many older religions. Uh, I mean, the practices yes. of older. This was how they could spread so well because they were so flexible. Like he, here in uh, in the north, as you know, of course, that they even built the churches on top of older hoves, as we call them. I don't know the English word. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. we have these state churches, which usually were sacred places. So this they did all over the place. We know they incorporated Mithras, yeah. very much Mithras tradition. Of course. They incorporated, if you look at the liturgy, the liturgy seems to be based on Greek impulses, especially Pythagorean. Yeah. And well, obviously, um, yeah. early Christianity, the main competitor was the Mithras religion. So they wrote up their stories and their rites more or less to uh, fight with the Mithraic. So that's why probably more than 50% of the presentation of early Christianity right. is equivalent to the Mithraic cult. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a way for them to survive and, and, and get more people over to them. Well, the background of, of Christianity and Judaism, uh, the Jews is, are just a, a, an Egyptian tribe. And some argue that even Solomon was not actually living in Israel, but actually was a kingdom in the delta of Egypt. So the earth, and there are now new studies of the, of the Old Testament, of the the five book of Moses, that if you start to look at them in the view of it being just old Egyptian language, then you start to understand that uh, how close the Jewish tradition is to old Egypt. And obviously Christianity, that Jesus cult, is even closer to the Egyptian roots than, than uh, the later Jewish tradition. Well, I'm not surprised if... Um... Solomon lived in Egypt because we know he traveled to his lover in Ethiopia, the Queen of Saba, oh. right? Sheba. And, uh, Sheba, yeah. and there's still uh, both Jews and Christians, uh, like original Jews, not, not missionary in yeah. new times, but original well, Jews. There is the argument that Queen of Sheba and Solomon were in fact king and queen of the north and south of Egypt. Right, right. So that almost like the, the as always is in Egypt, it's the unity of the two kingdoms of the yeah. north and the south. Yeah. So it's almost like a, a Shiva and Shakti, the father and the mother coming together. Not Ethiopia in the modern sense, even though obviously the source of the Nile is in is in modern day Ethiopia. Well, wait a minute. How do we? Uh, I mean, the, today's Egyptian borders aren't the same as back then. I think Egypt was much bigger. No, not necessarily bigger, but it was split in half. So that the the north 
was uh, one kingdom and the middle and the south was another kingdom. And later, which is the myth of obviously Osiris and Horus and Set, mm-hmm. that uh, after the death of Osiris, the kingdom is split and there's a battle between the north and the south and they are symbolic of the physical man and the spiritual man. So Horus represents the, the, the north part of the kingdom, the delta, which means the incarnate man and Set, the evil one, stands for spirit. And they battle until yeah. they becomes the United Kingdom. So Solomon is in fact the earthly king, and Sheba is the the, the queen of the heavenly uh, person, the inner man. Yes, and and uh, de Lubitsch would agree with you, as you probably know. But so you don't think Queen of Sheba uh, that the lower Egyptian kingdom was extended all the way to Ethiopia? We we don't know. I don't. It's it's. Um, it's possible. I, I it's think possible, so. But I, don't, I think even further south, there are kingdoms that use pyramids, but they, they were not Egypt in itself, but they were a, a deeply connected with the Egyptian. Colony. Egyptian. Yeah. Well, independent, yeah. quite independent, but still of the same or similar cult. Mm, same tradition. Okay. So... We know that Christianity incorporated, but what do you think was really used then instead of wine and bread? Are there any ideas about that uh, among the experts? Well, well, I think first you have to understand the nature of the liturgy, the nature of the mass. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, it's about creating sacred space. And once you have created the the fullness of the space, invoked the angels, etc., etc., and the prayers, then there is the the statement of your sin. So you meditate on your imperfections. Uh, then, once you've done that, then you receive the sacrament. Yeah. And then you sit down on this further song. So this is really a, a therapeutic process. And, and the sacrament was an ingredient to, to help you in the process of your, of your inner struggle. So, so it was a facilitator. And, and we know from Egypt... Um, uh, and from the Greece mysteries that the psilocybin mushroom was the main one, even though there is also evidence uh, that the Amarita, uh, fly agaric, the red mushrooms may have been used as well. That's that's what we call the fluisop, right? The fly fungus or something like that. Is that the red one? Yeah, the red with the white dots. Yes, but I think... Is that Amarita? Yes, that's it. yes, exactly. But the other one, which is the smaller one, uh, which is in England is called the witch's hut. <laughs> right. Because uh, like Gandalf hut, like dwarves yeah, yeah. huts, you know, like witch's huts, they're all kind of similar to the self-sabbing mushroom. It's a Phrygian cap, isn't it? I mean, uh, Santa Claus has it. Yes, exactly. And he's red like the fly agaric mushroom. Yeah, yeah. There's many people who has uh, drawn connections between that. Like, yeah, yeah. there's a shamanic root to that aspect of the myth. Obviously, uh, Santa Claus is based on on the saint who lived in Turkey, the uh, Saint Nicholas. But yeah. somehow, this myth has amalgamated together with the more magical yeah. aspect of it. It's which an is... old like everything in Christianity. Like even the modern day theologians, they say, well, Christianity is an amalgamation of different stories, mm. and almost none of these stories are original. It is a repetition yeah. of old myths and stories. Yeah. 
Uh, and notwithstanding pre- spiritual principles in Christianity, like the Holy Trinity is yes. as old as religion yes. itself. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but uh, again, I have to press you. What do you think was then used instead of bread and wine? I think it it was um, it was uh, pro- the dry it was probably just dried mushrooms. It could have been alcohol, but it could be an alcohol infused with something else. Um, Wait a minute. Uh, our mead, you know, the Vikings mead. Yes. Uh, obviously alcohol, but I've heard uh, they put flame soap. That's, uh, uh, what's that in English, flame soap? Um, that's the mushroom. Yeah, you turn it out of the, yeah. the Voldan myth, the death myth of Voldan. Yeah. They probably use the psilocybin mushroom. In, in the mead. In the meat, yeah, we know obviously that the um, the fins, the laps, they they were using that, but even more so the red uh, fly agaric mushroom, because the the reindeers, because the Greeks are very clever about this, because they honor that all these um, these uh, psychedelics or these sacred medicine, they were found by the animals that they heard, mm. so they often connected with the the god of the goat, and in the north. It's the reindeer because the reindeers can smell the flyagaric mushrooms a mile off, so they they were used to find them. Ah, so <laughs> no wonder Rudolf had a red nose. Yes, but <laughs> but it's interesting because you know there's more and more people now, and I guess Joe Rogan is probably the most famous expression of this new idea no. that's emerging no. that all the world's spiritual traditions and religions actually are founded upon some kind of psychedelic revelation which makes sense because like joe rogan says you know whoa we're primitive uh, cave dwellers right and someone accidentally eats something that just alters their mind (laughs) they get a revelation they bring it to the others "Oh, oh okay they won't believe me eat this you too and then oh He's initiated too, right? So they all get it. Now, we know, of course, that it creates new uh, synapses connections. I'm going to get to that in the latter part of our show today, where we go into the science of it. But there's also the view, I, I think, Mircea um, Eliade and maybe also Kerensky and some other religious scholars think that most religions are rooted upon shamanism and if shamanism is the original spiritual expression of man uh, then it makes sense because i I haven't heard of one shamanic tradition where they're not using any substance you know they always have some kind of substance of course limited to their local conditions but uh, ayahuasca which is very famous and popular now just a story of how that and what they say themselves down there in in South America, how that emerges is fantastic because there's you can't explain it with accident because you have to put together like two completely different things that is not natural, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, well, I I argue that in fact uh, possibly the myrdur, possibly another drink is that in in Iceland the highest mountain of Iceland is named after the plant Angelica or and the Quan is repeatedly mentioned in many of our literature as an important plant. And even like in, in Norway, the mid-summer celebration, people would go and pick Angelica for the end of the, the, um, of the Christian celebration of midsummer. So people receive it. So it's an old tradition. Yeah. And 
the angelica is like one of the plants of uh, ayahuasca. It is the one who is a stimulant and is a monoaminase oxidase inhibitor. So it is uh, it prevents the breakdown of the active uh, medicine. So uh, possibly mushrooms with angelica were used ah. to create a mixture very similar to uh, the ayahuasca. So this angelica plant you're talking about, yes. interesting name, by the way, um, yeah. that actually is accessible to us up here. Of course, and, and the cells have been mushrooms in, in everywhere, but obviously more in the north, we have the red mushrooms in Norway, yeah. Yeah, and the, and the flanks up the psychosyllabin. But, um, yeah, and, and actually, there's one more thing called bane, uh, what's it called? Bulmeurt um, in Norwegian. Uh, bane something? Handbane? No, uh, let me look it up. You, you don't say bulmeurt in your country? Sorry? Oh, it's, in English it's called handbane, hogbein. Handbane. Hyoshiamos. Yeah. Are you aware of that one? No. Oh, really? Because they used it in... in um, most people think um, the Sades used it in, in the Norse tradition and witches used it. Uh, yeah, apparently. it could have been... A, it's come on Maybe you don't have it in your country. I don't think so. Right, okay. Well, we have it I here. Okay, but so, so even if you don't put together the thing that creates ayahuasca, yeah. they still have effects each on their own? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, not necessarily the angelic on its own. It's a light stimulant. It, it is just like in China, in Icelandic tradition, it is the main healing plant and is linked in Christianity with, with uh, St. Michael. And that's why it's called the angel of the archangel. Hmm. Um, but it, it's certainly not a psychedelic on its own, but um, it could have been used to enhance... Um, uh, the power of the psilocybin mushroom. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, if we look at the first Christians then as a way to, I mean, we really need to separate between the church when that was established, especially after 325, because that's what people think of as Christianity. That's really the Peter, the Paulus tradition, St. Paul, and uh, the Church of Peter in Rome. And of course, the Orthodox and the Catholic Church uh, split at some point. But if you go back to uh, the church meeting in Ikea in year 325, that's when they really started to become a power organization. They excluded a bunch of so-called heretics, including, which many people don't know, that the first uh, church in Jerusalem was headed by James, brother of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And they were enemies of Paul. Paul, remember, never met Jesus. And I'm saying this for the benefit of the listeners. Paul yeah. was a Roman mercenary hired to kill Christians. And I have a personal conspiracy theory, which isn't very popular among when I tell it to Christians, because they are so connected to the Paul organization. Sure. Yeah, so he was a mercenary. Yep. And my personal conspiracy theory that people don't want to hear is that you know, if you if you have the task of destroying Christianity because they're becoming a threat, let's throw throw them to the lions and uh, they are causing unrest in our empire. So it's not very effective to kill one and one because you can't really kill an idea. 
So I think at some point he or his handlers or someone realized, hmm, what if we hijack this thing instead? Okay. What if we incorporate it? What if we make it into a power institution? And so he allegedly had this uh, vision of a cross in the sky. The cross wasn't even their symbol. The fishes was the symbol. Yeah, and then he, he went on and, and made his own. Of course, he may also have accidentally been given some mushroom <laughs> by a Christian and then actually had a vision. Maybe he was converted. But whatever happened there, what he started became something else than the first uh, religion. So I don't think the mushroom thing was big after year 325, but it may have been big among the early Christians. Do we know anything about this? I'll just to, I think with early texts, um, I think we, we tend to often take these early texts as literal texts. But if we understand that the early writers had a different understanding of what a true text is, and they are usually mythological and symbolic. So uh, first of all, Paul is on the way to Damascus. Uh, now, Damascus is a, could be a symbolic path, like a spiritual journey, a spiritual practice. Pilgrimage, yeah. Now, secondly, he is, he is a killer of Christ. What could that mean, a killer of the followers? That could mean he is a man who doesn't have a spiritual view, and he dismisses the spiritual in him. Right. So on his way to Damascus, which could be the Salzabin, it could be the sacred journey or spiritual practice, he comes to open to his spiritual reality, and then he has to embrace it. And, and I think and if you look at the modern research into the psilocybin or the equivalent of, of ayahuasca is that it is similar to what we call kind of a spiritual experience, even for the atheists, about two thirds of atheists who have a spiritual experience with psilocybin, they become spiritual people. Yeah. And I think that's, I see St. Paul as a man who uh, is always a better story that who is against something and discovers it and embraces it. Mm. He is a, someone who is anti-religious, anti-spiritual. He is dismissing spiritual reality. He takes a journey of some sort, and then he starts to embrace and he rediscovers the, the spirituality within him. Hmm. That's a, that's a new perspective. Interesting. But uh, it's still, uh, yeah, it could be. Uh, but you remember the first church in Jerusalem uh, and James himself referred to, they referred to yes. Paul as Paul the liar. <laughs> that was his nickname. Yes. So, but maybe that was, I don't know, uh, maybe that was because of power struggle. Uh, Paul should have taken more psychosyllabin because his, his personality <laughs> was still with him. Uh, when he started to organize the Roman church. Yeah. And, and of course, the, we're not even going to discuss if Jesus was a real person. That's very popular among many academics now to regard him as a myth. But I believe personally that he was a real person. But that's not even important to this point, because what we're discussing here isn't the historic aspects of the people involved. We're discussing the traditions and yeah. whether these traditions were either conceived, uh, incepted by psychedelics or heavily influenced by. And if you look at other religions, earlier religions, we have the same 
indications there. For example, was it Peter Kingsley or maybe it was um, this other expert on the... Yeah, uh, Apollonian tradition, yeah. Yeah, they talked about how, you know, uh, the oracle in Delphi, Pythia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. By the way, folks, over the oracle, everybody knows it said, Gnothis Auton, which means know thyself. But uh, the full statement uh, that you had to pass is, man, know thyself and you shall know the gods and cosmos. Yeah, exactly. That gives a good twist to it. Anyway, so she apparently was inhaling fumes. Exactly, and the drink. Yeah, just to those who doesn't know, the oracle, she was sitting in this cave, yeah. there was priests around her, and really what she was doing was she was, uh, you know, babbling yeah. her, her visions, exactly. and the priests were interpreting it, Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the thing is, uh, there's researchers saying that there was fumes coming up from the floor of the cave, yeah. and that induced her into an uh, altered exactly. state of mind. Are you on board with this? Yeah, absolutely. But there are even more stories within the Greek traditions. There were many psychedelic traditions, and many of them are linked with Delphi. And one is very interesting, which is a female-only cult. And they, they uh, took a journey, I don't know how long it took, and walked around uh, Parnassus, the, the highest mountain in the area. And, and they were kind of wild women. They they were sexually explicit, they were masturbating, they were out in nature, they were taking psychedelics. Is this the Bacchus cult? No, no, this, I, I forget the name of it, I'll find it for you later. Okay. It was, a, it was a potent kind of wild woman cult, getting women to find their true nature. Wow, this, is, this sounds like the, art, the, the roots of so-called witchcraft. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And this was a very well-known, and obviously the, and this is... If you like the, the the difference between masculine theoretical approach and, and direct experience approach, um, the the traditions were always a bit scared of these wild traditions because they threatened the order and the power. But I think at the same time they were liberating the souls. Mm. Interesting, and they were using uh, uh, substances. They were using substances. We don't know fully. What it was, but it most likely was the psilocybin. There was a, I think, if I remember right, it, in almost every village of Greece, there was at least one temple to the mushroom god. Wow! And what mushrooms? So was, what mushrooms do they have down in around the Mediterranean? Do they have well, the same? I think the mushroom symbols were primarily based on the psilocybin mushrooms. Okay, but you said that uh, uh, the Pythia, you said something about she was given a drink too? Yes, and uh, just like in, as you, as you know very well about the Eleusian mysteries, mm -hmm. uh, which were the only, if you like, public mysteries. People were allowed to join after a long walk every few years, uh, and they received the sacred drink where they, could, they set up a theater and a music and people could see and connect with the gods. So, uh, but uh, just like in any mysteries, they took a, almost like a death oath of not to reveal what they drank. But that probably was also um, the, uh, the psilocybin mushroom. So I think right. Christianity starts to compete with these old traditions to give a true experience because th these medicines, are, they call them psychedelics. Del means towards, towards the spirit. Uh, they, they, 
they are kind of <coughs> spiritual teachers. They are sacred drinks. Right. Well, you know, there are several death books in the world. You have the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you have the Egyptian yes. Book of the Dead, and th those are most known because they're relatively complete. Yes. Now, the, the weird thing about those books, they are heavily symbolic. They are very hard to access for people who are not trained in the mythology and the symbolism of those traditions. Yeah. Although you could say that, I mean, Jung did a good job on the explaining the, he wrote a foreword to um, the Tibetan book. And there are elements in the Tibetan book of the dead that are universal, that are easily to understand for people who are not into that tradition. But I want to bring our attention to a third book. And I would just call it the Eleusian book of the dead, yeah. uh, which is incomplete, unfortunately, but they're found in new fragments now the most complete version there is. And what's special here is that this death guidance seems to could be very well explained as a trip. It's a very, uh, it's like a progress. It's like a, a, a journey, as you say. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I won't go into details, but you know certain things like you come to, uh, don't drink, don't drink of this water source because you, it's, it's uh, water of oblivion. You have to drink of the other water source, which is, yes, the water of re remembrance, right? Yes. and you have to give your password yeah, yeah, to yeah. the guardians. This is the Gnostic, Gnostic tradition equivalent to the old Egyptian, yeah. Yes, and this sounds very much like something you could experience in a trip. Yes. It sounds like a journey. And I think there's been a, a, a lot of interest now in the, both the begin, beginning of Hinduism from the obviously Russian steppes, uh, the beginning of that tradition in, in, uh, uh, in uh, India, as well as the Buddhism. And to what degree, because the, the, early, the early Hindus would have a fire ceremony and then they would drink the soma. And the soma was made from a sacred plant that was never revealed, but most likely is the mushrooms. And the Buddhists were doing an equivalent ceremony, and it became very much strong within the, if you like, the, the tantric traditions, where they were using the soma, which they now call the amrita, the sacred drink. And, and I think that the Book of the Dead is more like a handbook of journeying. Right. How you manage to go into the deeper level, because I will come to it later. There are obviously many levels depending on the dose and your preparation with mushroom training, but basically it leads you to your personal death mm. and meeting your spiritual self. The current research isn't really focused on the spiritual experience, but there is evidence to show that those who go into the deeper levels, they make the biggest difference because the, if, you, if you like the, the core physical and mental challenge of modern society is that we are disconnecting, disconnected from spirit, we're disconnected from each other, we're disconnecting from the land and the spirit, and we're off without meaning. And these medicines, they help us to reorganize what is important and, and leaving our personality behind, able to connect with what's most deep in the soul. And once you connect it, then everything else becomes less of an issue. So just like in the mysteries, go to the heart of things, meet the sacred, then you come transformed back. Right. Uh, it's, it's good you mentioned Soma, because I was going to ask you about that. Um, 
And you think that's, uh, and by the way, you're such an expert on words. Uh, isn't it interesting that in Greek it means body or matter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that like, uh, do you think there's a connection? Well, uh, there is, because uh, the mushroom in different culture, even from Mexico to Greek to Egypt to India, is called the body of God. Right, right. That makes so much sense. And when you say that it's the death of the person, what it really means is the death of the ego. The ego. I yeah. mean, we, we all know ever since CIA started uh, their experiments on prisoners and on crazy people and others, in the, back in the 60s, 70s, they had this classified, now, of course, public domain information where they put LSD. I mean, we can talk about later the story of how LSD even came to be, sure. <laughs> because that's a synthetic. But when they gave these things to people, CIA is, you know, if anyone are satanic in the true sense of the word, it would be institutions like that, cults like CIA. So they went into it to expand the mind. They noticed another di interesting difference, and that's the death of the ego, the dissolvance of the ego, because they thought that if we can rear down the ego of people, then we can brainwash them, we can influence them. Well, I think their the main issue was to try to use as a truth serum, right. so that once you're deep in there, you would just tell the truth, yes. so it would break it down. Yes. And people, we know that under influence of psychedelics, which is the tricky part, people become very um, easy to suggest to, very suggestible. So um, that's one of the things that they can be used for bad things. Yeah, of course. But my point is that it's so interesting that uh, because uh, the, the dissolvance of the ego is really yeah. the true meaning of the word death. Yeah. Obviously, consciousness can't die. <laughs> it's not born, it's not dead. So and in, the, in the New Testament uh, and also in other like Hindu texts, the, the second death the, or the second birth, you know, what people experience once they met spirit, they, they, they have a new life. They are given a, a, yeah. a new sense of self because once, the, the, if you like, the early ego that we all developed is, is really bound to your name and your story and your, your sufferings, etc. But once you... And, and exterior things, out of yes. things. Yeah. But once you start to connect with a larger uh, universe, which you feel that you're no longer under control, but you become a part of something greater, yeah. you are expanded. Your, your fear of death goes away. You're, you, you, you're not only about money and, and job. You are more about the essence of things, connecting with people, connecting with the universe. So the shift to what is important in your life is transformed. And that's that's what they refer to as the rebirth. That's yes. the, yeah. yeah. So you 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 become one with God, with other people. You feel the more with love, etc. Yeah. So this is how it goes, and it goes like this in any tradition, really, not just yeah. <laughs> Christianity or exactly. So and yes, I think it's very it's very logical that um, substances would be a tool to achieve that. But let's not forget. Or, or, or underestimate the fact that people can and do have these transformative experiences even without substances. Of course, of course. but not not. I think that I think good training. There are lots of te different techniques uh, to do that. 
uh, no doubt. But it, it depends on people's, if your innate skill to do that, like as we know with the shamanic traditions, that there are people that have genetic lines where this becomes easier. Mm. But what what is with the psychedelics? They, they do it even for atheists, even for people who are like St. Paul, completely against spirit. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and this is why people like Joe Rogan, etc. He always says these politicians or these military people or these or the, they should all take an LSD trip. Yes, yes. He thinks that would change the world, and yes. we're going to get back to that. Exactly. Let's just dwell a little more with the traditional stuff before we move up to the modern stuff. Yeah. So we were talking about soma. Yeah. Of course, it's very it's very well known that in uh, Hindu, because Hinduism, like I said many times before, is not really a religion per se, like what people think of a religion. It's an umbrella um, descriptor of pagan traditions in that area. Uh, I mean, we might as well call, uh, you know, Hinduism is in India. We may say Europism, Europism, yeah. <laughs> about ancient it, pagan traditions here, right? Well, I think it's an Indo-Germanic tradition that embraces the, the tribal element of spiritual traditions, that every tribe is allowed to, you know, recreate, reform, readapt yeah. its spiritual truth. So every guru um, is able to rediscover, re-understand, reframe whatever he's his spiritual tradition is about. And that freedom uh, ensures that the teachers are, are always to try to come to the source and, and speak from the source, not speak from the books, mm. but speak from spiritual experience. Same as in uh, Native uh, Amerindians no, and exactly. Africa too. But um, my point is that there are other known subs. For, for example, cannabis. And of course, everybody knows it's, it's sacred to the... Rastafaris, right? Yes. <laughs> but hasn't it has that also been used in more traditional, older cults? Of course. I think you you may probably know this better than me. But even for example, they found um, cannabis in Leif Hepney, Newfoundland. Yeah, the, the yeah. Scandinavians were using it. Uh, it, it. We know the shamans of of uh, mid and South America use it to enhance the journey with the, with the mushrooms or with the sacred plants. It's one of the tools, it's just like the tobacco, you know, everything can be abused, just like the tobacco and the cannabis. But in the context of a therapeutic or spiritual journey, these can be, as the South Americans told, they can be sacred teachers. They can be facilitators of the journey to the most sacred. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and of course, it's very widespread in India. When I was there, I mean, it was growing everywhere. I mean, it is. they call it weed for a reason. Yes, yes. <laughs> it really grows like... But I think we need to understand that even in, in the modern context where we are trying to treat depression and lack of meaning and trauma, etc., etc., there are a considerable parts we can... Talk about how big that part, depending on what kind of group you select, it could be 10% or 40% that actually are not responding to this treatment. So they're not responding to the psychedelic journey. And then you have to think about what else can help to help the person to get through the barrier, because there are multiple reasons why people are unable to connect with the source of themselves. Yeah. 
you know, it could be a lot of trauma, it could be ADHD, it could be a bit of autistic spectrum things, it could be a, a very fundamental attitude, it can be a worldly view, it can be fear of death, it can be a lot of things. So yeah, it's about psychopathy. I wonder if it can cure yes. psychopaths. Exactly. So it's it's about and, and psychopathy is really an uh, an illness where you cannot really connect with the soul, with spirit and your emotions. So yeah. you become a very kind of machine-like kind of person. You, you you're very limited. Yeah, it's like the complete overtaking of the ego. Yes, exactly. You know, the ego is taking over. So it doesn't understand or doesn't really appreciate the experience of others. Everything is about you and you are more or less free to use the universe as your playground because the universe is you. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's like a, it's actually like a solecism, <laughs> kind of a solecism. But uh, uh, we have other uh, substances traditional too. We have like um, the lotus eaters. Yes. Uh, maybe you can speak a little about them. And and what about in the uh, opium? Hasn't opium been used in China in Taoism? Or yes, I think that all of these have probably been used in different traditions. What, what we go to the lotus, especially you go to the just like Angelica was the highest flower in, in the Nordic tradition. In in ancient Egypt, the blue lotus was the most sacred flower, and we have a lot of the imagery of the pollen being kind of thrown in front of your nose and the pollen put into the beer, etc. It was one of the key hallucinogenic uh, agents, just like make, maybe like the angelica and the mushrooms, it was mixed with something. Right. So we know in, in ancient Egypt, it was a sacred part of the sacred medicine, uh, but also in India. But I think the, the images of, uh, I may be ignorant here, but the the lotus symbols that are used in in India, I don't think they're as hallucinogenic as the Egyptian one. Mm. But they are traditionally like the gurus or the yogis or the gods, they're often sitting on a lotus flower, which could be interpreted that they are on a on a flower flower journey, they are on a, a psychedelic journey. Or they're gods of the psychedelic journey. Yeah, I remember when I I was there. There was these. Uh, they were they were covered in ashes. Yes. Kind of holy man, but yeah, the kind of dark spirituality. The vibodi, but vibodi is different. Vibodi is the ashes of the fire. It's a symbol that you have dissolved everything. The ego, the form is gone, and you come down to the source of things. Um, modern gurus like Sahiba. I think they were eating something too. Yes, yes. But the vibodi, the 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 white, the grey ash, is a symbol of dissolution. Is symbol of death and transformation. Yeah, they were calling them death uh, death eaters. I forgot. But yeah, uh, well, there is a there is a a very primal um, tantric cult where they actually eat human flesh. Uh, and they, are they Kali worshippers? They are kind of that. They worship the death and they they meditate in in um, cemeteries, etc. Wow. So they're honoring death as transformation. Huh. Doesn't sound very healthy, though, <laughs> eating. No, but it's just one of these traditions, and as valid as others, but yes, it's not very <laughs> life-oriented, shall we say. <laughs> no, 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 very moon. But uh, what about the poppy? Isn't poppy what they uh, make opium of? Yes, yes. Yeah, I think, I, th I would, I, I think, 
if we talk about um, trauma, mm-hmm. psychological trauma, mm-hmm. and defense systems, they are more or less all internal, adding painkillers to your life. So, so once you've experienced trauma, the brain starts to produce uh, painkillers in the brain to to ease your day. Obviously, the task is in the end to open to it and heal it. And and the poppy and all the painkillers, modern or, or old, they assist you in blocking your trauma, blocking your your journey. So, I I, I would. I would argue it's not a very good medicine for healing journeys. Mm. Right. Because the healing journeys is about opening up to what you're afraid of, opening up to your pain. And this is very much described in, in kind of Buddhist traditions that on your journey, you have to first honor your personal suffering. Then you have to offer you honor your the universal suffering of all humans, but all living beings. And it's only when you can embrace this great suffering of the universe that you're allowed into the sanctuary of the sacred. Mm. And and the op- the the opium or the painkillers are the very opposite. It is in the denial of suffering. Mm. Yeah. Some of the stuff you sent me was also a book called yeah. uh, so you have uh, this one the secret drugs of buddhism psychedelic yes. sacraments and the origin of the vajrayana yeah now uh, vajrayana of course is esoteric buddhism as if buddhism isn't esoteric in itself <laughs> but there's over it's it's kind of akin to i would say sufism in islam and uh, yeah. uh, tantra yoga So this guy, Mike Rowley, he thinks that uh, there's been several substances essential uh, for the Buddhist tradition. So is he arguing that Buddha himself, Siddhartha, was... I mean, we know he was a yogi. No, no, no. He's more or less honoring that if in the kind of, let's say, 4th to the 7th uh, century, there is a, a flowering of tantric traditions, both within Hinduism and Buddhism. What does tantrism mean? It's using a sacred drink. It's flourishing in symbolism, uh, all kind of symbolism, using images and all kind of integration of various practices. And, and these really flowered in this period, both in India and later up in Tibet. Mm. And he argues that that this was mainly caused by, if you like, the breaking the secret code of, of the Brahmins who always kept the, the secret medicine to themselves. So it became more of a general cult. It has always been the secret of secrets. Yeah. So, and, and through that, there was a, a spiritual awakening in this whole area uh, that facil- facilitated the flowering of all these multiple tantric deities and, and practices okay interesting so um well i, I, w- I want to add to that uh, you sent me a bunch of um, i mean these are very obvious old christian iconography and symbolism where the mushroom is connected to jesus all the time in all yes. the pictures i've seen same others too this is very evident i mean there's no interpretations here possible no, no. other than but i think that it just it, it on one hand 
they are not they're not very old these are images that are uh, from christian uh, churches or 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 decorations that are kind of from 10th to 13th century and but they do demonstrate that there was understanding that the book of of understanding between good and and evil and the the book uh, the tree of life they were in fact the sacred medicine um, just like as you, as you may remember in the book of moses when god says after Adam and Eve have have taken the sacred fruit of the tree of good and evil, mm. and they start to understand the difference between right and wrong. Then he says, only that they don't also eat of the tree of life and become immortal. Right. So in the book of Moses, they are saying there is a second tree, there is a second plant that you can eat of, and that will drive you all the way into the divinity. Yeah. Yeah, this tree of life and the tree of knowledge are, are two different things. Yes, yeah. but the classical interpretation is that God or Jehovah, the tribe God, if you're Gnostic, you don't even think this is the real creator God. Yeah. Or, or if you're into like ancient aliens, then our evil uh, overlords, <laughs> whoever is in power, that the traditional interpretation is that they don't want us to wake up to become as enlightened as them. Yeah, because I then like we... to, yeah, I would like to just to do it the same as with St. Paul, that yeah. they... The mythological writers of the Old Testament, they understand there are different states of development. And the the mundane man who has who doesn't include the sacred, he doesn't he he is afraid of embracing the larger. He feels threatened. He feels he will die if he will let go of his views. So, and then the spiritual man who is connected, he's no longer afraid of death. So the the uh, the early god, the god of the of the uh, mundane man, uh, as well the god of the spiritual man, they are different, but they are are reflecting the state of development of the soul. Mm. Uh, yes, this is uh, classical, uh, but uh, uh, let's also emphasize the fact that, uh, and I think you indicated it, that uh, nowhere does it say that there was an apple that they were eating. It's the uh, fruit but, of the tree. It's also yes. mentioned in, in the New Testament. You will know them by the fruit of the tree. Fruit, yes. It's yeah, the, fruit. the fruit of the tree is, it could be the metaphor of, of the sacred plant. Indeed, it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be a metaphor. It may have been a remnant of an actual fruit, so to speak. Yes. Like a, like a, yeah. so, it is um, also much of language. Even the, the Hindus and the Buddhists and... The Norwegians, the, the Scandinavians, um, they didn't even have the name for mushrooms because it was a kind of a forbidden fruit. It was it was a secret fruit. So mm. even having the name for it was not allowed. Mm. It makes sense. So you have to create a metaphor. It makes sense that it would be Eve who took the initiative to eat it because, like you indicated earlier, if we look at the polarity, of course, this isn't to do with gender per se, because every gender, every man has a female aspect, every woman has a male. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. not about hooray, the women, but it's the symbolism that Eve, as a representative of the feminine, maybe the sacred feminine, if you like, yeah. takes an initiative to eat this fruit so that 
the polarity you were talking about earlier, that the male polarity is the order, system, but also negative dogmatic, yeah. the intellectual approach, the analytical approach, clinging to that. Exactly. And then you have the chaos, like you said, the free, the open, the intuitive, the feminine aspect. Yeah. So obviously it would be Eve who would say, hey, let's broaden our mind. Let's, let's have an altered consciousness and uh, reach the next level. That makes sense. We, we see that kind of dialogue very much in, in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, where Mary Magdalene and Peter are having a dialogue, and Peter represents the kind of literal understanding, try to put the things in the box, but <laughs> Mary Magdalene is, is arguing, no, this is something you can only experience, you cannot teach it. Mm. Mm. And she is talking about the nurse, the, the organ of spirit, that you, you have to see and hear it, you have to understand it by experience, you cannot teach it in books. Interesting. It's it's very. This is an echo from the Hermes books. Hermes yes. says to his son, yeah, yeah, yeah. says to his son, "This, my son, cannot be uh, learned. No, uh, it has to be remembered." Yeah, and remembering means re relived, re reconnected yeah. to. Yeah, and this is about the process. It's, it's just like in psychotherapy that we talk about. You know, you can have education, which is you know obvious, and then there is process. And education has very little role in helping people transform their emotions. You have to take them on a journey. You have to take them in a therapeutic process. And it's not the meaning of the process, but the process itself that mm. gives the transformation. Mm. That's the chaotic. It's difficult to define it, but it's what happens on the journey. It's like Gandhi said, the goal or the target is the journey or the road yeah because you see many people oh we ju the means justify the the goal no the goal and the means are one yeah, but uh, exactly. the full uh, the full uh, statement of hermes is that he says it has to be you, you can't teach it but you have to uh, remember it if gods allow it yes. you know inshallah yeah, yeah, yeah. so th th that indicates again that you have to connect with the spirit yeah Mm. Is there anything else you think we should emphasize for the more older traditional stuff before we move up uh, to more modern scientific psychological stuff? I think we, it's just to emphasize that most cultures, if not all, have had a psychedelic component and it had a great role for teenagers to, ex to connect with spirit and for adults to continue healing the struggles of their lives and making a deeper connection for those who want to seek the very essence of the universe. I think most traditions had that. Right. Obviously, there are, but we're not talking about a psychedelic only in the cultural framework and with a lot of techniques, but psychedelics were the heart, the mystery that, that helped the normal man. I think we always have gift, specially gifted people who take and take this without it. Mm. But, but most traditions had this medicine for the normal man to connect with the heart of things. Yeah, because you couldn't expect from him the level you would get from the priests, the shamans, the, the hero fans. Yeah. So it would be like a shortcut. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember I read not, that. Not a shortcut, a facilitator. Yeah, yeah. I think shortcut means something cheap. Yeah, you're right. But a facilitator means an empowerment. That's right, that's right. 
yeah, better. So uh, yeah, it would be like, um, uh, I think it was, um, was it Plato? One of the uh, pre-Socrats said that um, it's for, th these are for the earth heads. Yes. Yes. <laughs> in astrology, it would be, you know, everybody with Mercury in an earth sign, people who can't get connected by themselves. Yeah. Okay, so I want to add one more thing to the, I, I mentioned the Delphic uh, reference, right? Yes. And we have a similar from Lao Tzu. Okay. You know, founder of Taoism. He says, knowing others is intelligence. Knowing yourself is true wisdom. Mastering others is strength. Mastering yourself is true power. Yeah, yeah. How true, how true. Now, of course, we have um, in modern society for some reason. Actually, I, I want to backtrack a little because we know that, uh, first of all, I'm amazed that uh, as late as in the 10th century, 11th century, 12th century, they were aware of the psychedelic connection yes. uh, from these pictures, these paintings and, and iconographs. And But maybe it's not that weird because you have, uh, you know, you have mystical traditions in Christianity very strong back then, like the Knights Templars and others who yeah. encountered old traditions and probably got reignited, reconnected with themselves. But uh, certainly after the Inquisition, things went down. And I exactly. Wonder... I think it's the Inquisition is the key to kind of close down. People put this even deeper down, these secret traditions. Yeah. Uh, starting to smack down everyone, not just Jews, uh, yeah. but even, you know, the witchcraft thing, and yeah. which, of course, didn't mean what in the fairy tales, you know, evil people uh, dabbling with black magic. No, it was usually it was uh, uh, people who were exactly experimenting with uh, plants and uh, they used it not just for altering the mind, but for healing, etc. And exactly. no wonder the feminine is represented mostly in our people's association with witches because that would be the feminine approach as uh, opposed to the masculine approach, which is the more intellectual studying, understanding by yeah. Yeah. learning, knowledge, and understanding by experience, intuition. Just stop you there, Alan, for a moment. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with the history of brewing in Europe. I was, I was going to get to that because monks, Christian monks, why on earth would they be interested in alcohol? I never understood that connection. That's to do with brewing. Well, I think we can go even, we can go even further. I think early on, it were primarily women who were making alcohol and they would use multiple plants. And, and in modern day brewing, we talk about the purity principle, so only using a few ingredients and no messing about with any other plants. But regarding um, the monks... But beer is based on hops, right? Yeah, I know. They put the hops. Yeah. But I think... The, I, don't, I, I don't know if you know this history, but when Christianity took over the Scandinavian world, mm -hmm. there were obviously main gods to battle with. There was Thor, it was Wodan, there was Freya. And so they selected saints that were the equivalent. And Saint Martin was the equivalent of Wodan. And monasteries that followed St. Martin or had in, in high esteem, they were the brewers. Ah. The sacred drink. Right. So the closest they could get to a sacred drink then would be alcohol. Yes, but they might still have added something to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
maybe some of the more experimental ones. Well, maybe it was a living tradition. I think it's not unlikely that if you if you think you are marketing a new faith, a new school, a new tradition, yeah. and you're battling with an old old myth and old traditions that uses powerful stuff, the only way you're going to conquer them is to use their medicine. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So you would have to take up their medicine to yeah. to uh, to win. Yep, that's a good point. But um, uh, yeah, like I said, Inquisition. I think it went down downhill from there. And uh, yeah. but amazingly, though, uh, alcohol survived in um, not so much in the Protestant, but uh, in the sacraments. They continued yes. using wine, and uh, monks continued brewing beer, and. Yeah. Um, and now all the way to the modern society where for some weird reason alcohol became the accepted way to alter your mind i think because alcohol is the verse of all intoxications in order to connect with your spirit uh, it it kind of it, it doesn't represent so much of a threat to the powers that be i think no I mean, yes, you can become violent, etc., in, in alcohol, but that's not really the real threat because all you, as a king or as a pope, you you can always have better violence. You have more soldiers, but the real fear is ideas, right? It's the battle of ideas. So you don't necessarily get too many new ideas from drinking, <laughs> but you will get many. It's there's most other drugs are inducing creativity, not so much alcohol. So that's my hypothesis well, think, of why alcohol was accepted. I don't fully, I don't fully agree. I think yeah. the alcohol is, as, as we know, the great social facilitator. And, and in small doses, like you get in the church, you know, just even less than half a cup, just the taste of it is a mild stimulant. Yeah. So it makes you more present in the here and now. So oh, it's, a, it's a fake medicine, but but still, I think the idea is also, which is into the more spiritual magic, that you have imbued in that substance a, a noble quality. And this comes again to our talk later about the sacred space, that modern day psychedelic psychotherapy doesn't really understand the concept of either sacred medicine or sacred space. It is not only the medicine itself, it is the attunement of it by someone who's experienced to the inner realities. Mm. Okay. So it's the transformation in ritual to the substance that is important. Right. But uh, be that as it may, though, it became the legal way to mm. escape this reality, unless you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't very well known. We know more now, of course, but in the West, uh, it wasn't very well known how you can alter your mind by natural and traditional techniques because those were destroyed, of course. So in the East, they still, and, and of course in Africa and in Americas, they, they knew to preserve this, probably in the Far East too. But uh, for a large extent, we were in a mental prison in the West for so long, yeah, yeah. which, uh, which uh, kind of explains why we are the most aggressive culture. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the paper link on our website, 
YouTube channel or Facebook page. Thanks. And of course, I would say the, the really dark ages <laughs> when it comes to intoxications. By the way, is intoxication the right word in English? Um, in Norwegian, we say rusmiddel. Okay. Uh, let me see a better word. Intoxication sounds bad. It sounds like yes. you're eating toxics. Let's see here. Yes. No, it's supposed to be intoxicating substances. Okay. Well, so, just to take take you up on that, uh, yeah. the thing is with uh, the psilocybin mushrooms, mm -hmm. it is neither addictive or toxic. You can take almost a thousandfold dose and you still don't die. Yeah, we'll get back to that. I yeah. just want to have another approach to the modern age. I want to talk about the 50s. Yes. Because the 50s is probably the bottom. Because if you go before the war, did you know that, for example, cannabis was completely legal? It was, I think it was in the 60s they started to ban it because the hippies used it so much. Yeah, it was Nixon who, who really created the anti-war on, yeah. on kind of, he, he saw that um, O'Leary and all that, yeah. Hippie thing was kind of threatening the order, people not coming to the to the military and, um, you know, the safety of Christianity and all that. So he saw that the, the source of all evil were, were the drugs. I, I'm not minimizing that some of these drugs are dangerous and can cause harm. There's no question about it. But he he's the one who, because I think up to 1965, there had been a almost a thousand studies on, on um, LSD and psilocybin, et cetera, et cetera. And they were very promising. But by, by, by the big brother, all of this was stopped. That's right. That's right. And there's another political aspect too. Um, you are now emphasizing kind of the moral or the ideological uh, excuse. Yeah. But there was two other aspects. Number one, as most things in the world is moved by money. There was, yeah. uh, what industry was it? They, they, they wanted to outlaw hemp because hemp was very cheap. Yeah, yeah. It was Rockefeller, the Rockefeller dynasty industry that was behind this. Uh, I forgot the details. There was, hemp was used as a very cheap and natural way. And there was competition in the market yeah. for, it could have been ropes, but there was some kind of that stuff. It's an amazing plant that is now coming more and more in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clothes, but, anything. So they wanted to destroy the hemp market. It was basic old capitalism. There was competition yeah, yeah. and they could stigmatize. And so, and they were viewing cannabis as something associated with Mexicans. Yes. And black people. Yeah, yeah. So it was also the kind of the racist or the culture chauvinist aspect of it. So there was many reasons they wanted to these power forces in the West. But if we fast forward then to the 50s, yeah. we're in the situation where people are after the war, people are super, uh, should I say, indoctrinated. It was a very restrictive society. Um, not much was tolerated. And uh, isn't the 50s when LSD was discovered? Can you, oh, yes. no, can you elaborate on how LSD came to the world? Well, I think there, there had been a lot of research on, wasn't it Hoffman who, who invented the LSD? Yeah. And really, by, by chance, kind of got contaminated and had some amazing experience. And, and, uh, and, and then 
they started experimenting. They gave it almost like a free license to psychiatrists to experiment where they would do anything and psychologists were studying it. And, you know, people were looking at various aspects of what to do and how we would do it and kind of, yeah, it, it was a fascinating um, kind of experiment. Yeah. I wonder if it uh, the reason they started to ban that could have been because intelligence services and the military wanted it for themselves. Possibly. Possibly. Because you would think that they why on earth would they force the scientists to, you know, leave that? Yeah, it's bizarre. It doesn't really make, I think I think it's I I see it as ignorance, but there could be something more to it. Yeah. I think if you look at if I was Nixon, and this is the 19 kind of late, late mid 1960s, um, you're seeing all these hippie moments, and people are leaving their jobs and education, and just sleeping around. And <laughs> this is demoralization of society. This is not right. <laughs> yeah, but don't don't forget that many were also uh, revolutionaries. Yes, so it was a political aspect too. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. But um, no, I, I'm not sure ignorance because politicians aren't informed enough and not interested enough to, you know, go deep into obscure experiments done in science. What happens is that in the pharma industry, you know, oh, we found a new drug and then they come out with it to the market and then the politicians can take a stand for and against or whatever, right? Mm. So there wasn't, it wasn't like it was a broad, everyone was experimenting it with it. It was... Oh, no, it was small. Small and narrow. Yeah, but, but you could argue that Albert Hoffman was following the ancient traditions because he, his research was actually looking into the ergot, the, the fungus that grows on rye. Right. That we know from, from mythology, Greek, elsewhere, the the fertility gods, etc., that possibly the ergot was used in sacred ceremony. Mm. So, um, and he found that the LSD is one, one of the um, one of the active ingredients. Right. And LSD is very similar to uh, psychosilobin uh, or whatever it's called, magic mushroom, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they just all these psychoactive substances are are working because they're similar to our own system. So he is kind of copying the one aspect of the serotonin. So it has a specific effect on on a particular serotonin receptor. Mm. Whilst uh, I would say DMT is different because DMT, I, I heard, is uh, produced in the body, especially when we die. Allegedly, there's an explosion of DMT in the, which gland is it? In the pineal, pineal gland. That's right. But uh, allegedly, there's also some DMT also while we live. And I've heard also that DMT... By the way, folks, DMT is what is produced by the ayahuasca plant. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like um, a death trip, kind of. But it sounds bad, but uh, <laughs> a liberation trip is probably better to say. But that it's chemically, I think it's similar to yeah, melatonin. Have you heard about that? Melatonin, is, we, we, we use it all the time for sleep. It helps, it's released, obviously, in the pineal gland and facilitates the, deep, the dream cycle. So we use the sleep medication. 
But what? The, but the issue is here in modern science: they, all these medications are primarily, as far as we know, working through a, a, a sub-receptor of the serotonin systems in the brain, the 2A receptor. Mm. So they are slightly different in how they activate it. But that, and the interesting bit is that the medicine we use for schizophrenia, like olanzapine and others, they block this receptor. Oh, interesting. So, and that's why that's one of the theoretical reasons that people are afraid that psychedelics may create psychosis. But it may be a, 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 may be a misunderstanding. But uh, so people are not. So in all the research that's going on, you have to exclude people with a psychotic history mm. because you don't want to trigger it. It may not trigger it. There's even experiments since the 1950s of LSD for psychosis, and it may may have been helping. So yeah, I think that it's complex. We don't know the full story. You're right, because you can't always say that the opposite leads to the opposite. I'll, I'll give a, 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 no. a better example. You know, people with a -H, uh, oh dear. A -D -H. ADHD. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. They actually get amphetamine speed. They get amphetamine, and everybody knows that a normal person who takes that yeah. become like an ADHD, right? Yeah. But if you give it to an ADHD person, it's like a homo homeopathic principle. <laughs> they become calm, yeah. and so in the same vein, yeah. I can imagine that if you give exactly. if you give psychedelics to a schizo, yeah. maybe they become more normal. Yeah. But it's it's logical that uh, anti schizo medicine will block this thing because, and of course you're the professional. I'm just wildly speculating, but in my view. Intuitively, it seems to me that people who have that kind of craziness, you know, psychosis, schizophrenia, you know, in the old days, uh, they were looked at maybe as blessed or cursed by the gods. Exactly. And one of the ideas that this is this shamanic, shamanic person in, in process. Right. Is Loki going wild? Yes. And the thing is, if these people have an unstructured, uncontrolled connection with the other world, right? Yeah. And, and if these psychedelics helps us who are stuck in this world to get that connection, uh -huh. then it makes sense that blocking that connection in the uh, schizos would also mean uh, blocking. Yeah, it would mean, mean the opposite of taking taking this but talking about uh, real experience the newer antipsychotics are, are with this blocker but the old ones don't okay and in fact the newer ones are no better at treating psychosis so the, the assumption that the receptor 2a is is essential in psychosis i think is false but there's so there's no evidence that if you give psychedelics to crazy people, I, I know I shouldn't call them crazy, no. but uh, <laughs> very unprofessional of me. But no, I think there is some minor evidence that some people that use uh, psychedelics, they can be triggered into a psychotic episodes. Okay. I think it's rare, but I think it's potential. And I think in the hippie period, there, there was <clears throat> some suggestion, but again, we don't know how valid that is, but so there is fear that um, that uh, that um, psychedelics may be dangerous for people who have the propensity to become uh, psychotic. So it may bring forward their psychotic illness, and they might not 
ever have it. And we know, for example, that cannabis, cannabis is a psychosis facilitator. So people, and we know there is a sub-receptor of cannabis uh, that some people have. And if you have it and you take cannabis, you go psychotic. So, yeah, that's the only criticism left now yeah. in our country against cannabis, yes. that yes, yes. it may lead to psychosis in some people. Yeah, and we know that maybe one in 200 of people may get psychosis. So one in 200 people who use cannabis may become unwell earlier or might not have got unwell at all. But education, education, education is about, and, and we know that if people start to get really a lot of issues and the paranoia after the first couple of experiments with cannabis, then they're at great risk of becoming seriously ill from cannabis. Mm. So it, it should be apparent from the very start. Yeah, LSD and mushrooms has been like a subculture thing, yeah. a rebel thing since the 60s. And when, when there was, you know, in the old days, there was just propaganda and lies and ignorance. There was no real value to the information we were getting about these things. So people had to resort to streetwise information. Yes. And the streetwise, the experience-based, the user-based information about these things has always been, this is especially true for psychedelics, what I'm saying now, is that if you take psychedelics, you can get a bad trip, as they call it. And in, in cannabis, it's paranoia. You will get a bad trip if you already have unresolved issues within you. Yes, so yes. they always said, they always said, look, if you get a bad trip, first of all, don't take too much. And, and we're going to get back to microdosing because that's very popular today. But they always say, don't take too much. That's number one. Yeah. And number two, if you get a bad trip, you certainly must trip again. Because for every time you trip, you will work yourself through those exactly. issues, those traumas those yeah, yeah. unresolved uh, things and gradually harmonize uh, so that eventually you get back to where most people go, uh, namely the blissful experience. And this seems to make sense. This, this is a direct correlation to psychiatric and therapeutic uh, aspect. And we know that Dr. Stanislav Grof, who but very early on experimenting with LSD. Oh, yeah. He amazingly, he got, he managed to get a license even during the worst conservative like Reagan and I don't know how early it started, but then they cracked down on it because they realized that it could legitimize psychedelics. And he had to resort to alternative methods yeah. to trigger the same kind of experience. And I have a book by him called LSD Psychotherapy. Yeah. in theory and practice oh, yeah. and there he was it there or maybe one of the other books he talks about breathing techniques that holotropic breathing yeah, yeah. holotropic that they had to uh, develop <laughs> in lieu of the of the psychedelics but had the same effects can you speak a little about this well i think um, in the yogic traditions there are multiple ways of triggering um, um, alternative uh, states of consciousness and we know, for example, the, Hin the Indian gurus, they often teach um, both pranayama, uh, breathing techniques, and bandhas, which is the holding techniques, uh, to trigger a very immediate spiritual awareness. Right. It's very famous, even the Beatles experience, you know, breathe a bit and then close your eyes and ears and uh, bend your neck and 
do some pelvic kind of squeezing and diaphragm squeezing and wait and hold the breath. And then you start to hear things and see some things, etc. So these are kind of techniques that can lead to similar experiences. Does it also lead to the same reactions in the brain? Well, we don't, we, there is no research to support that. But this is within the yogi traditions. These are one of the techniques to initiate or open people to their inner reality. Um, but, you know, Croft yeah, obviously used that because when you hyperventilate, you close down uh, your frontal brain. And then, if you like, the ego is no less in control. And then you're more able to imagine things and use the inner, inner kind of world. So it facilitates an inner journey. So, so the prefrontal cortex is the inhibitor. Uh, yeah, I think the, that's the seat of the ego, maybe. That's partly the ego. Is the organizer? Is the controller? Is the yeah? It's a bit of the order element <laughs> within the brain. Plus the reptile part of the brain, right? Those two. Yes, I think. I think it's well. We know that people when people go into a panic attack, then that's when the frontal lobe closes down and they go into a very fearful state. But in the pranayama yoga tradition, you do the same thing. You hyperventilate deliberately, but you add in visual and mental techniques to calm down and bring peacefulness. And through that, and sound too, maybe. Yeah, not really at that stage. And mm. then you create a, a new state of mind that allows you to go deep into the inner mind. Right, right. And I, I in fact, use this technique to help people overcoming panic attacks because you teach them to transform that the body has learned that hyperventilation leads to anxiety. You actually activate the same system, but you reframe it by meditation. Right. Makes sense. So would you say that psychedelics is um, a way for people to actually deal with insanity? Well, it depends on what you call insanity. I think yeah. at the moment we'll have to put uh, psychosis to the side. We don't know enough of link between the two. But when we come to the seeking of meaning, the sense of emptiness, when we come to depression and anxiety, yeah. when it comes to trauma, PTSD or burnout, then the psychedelics are important. But I think that there are more they're now, they may help with ADHD, they may help with chronic headaches. Or Asperger. Yeah, Asperger, Asperger MDMA may be even better there, but mm. I think we're talking about multiple effects, not only mental health issues. We are coming to, because you were talking about the battle of the, of the businesses, because yeah. Yeah. psychedelics is the biggest threat to modern day psychopharmacology it is but but there are new movements it seems the big pharma now wants to go into this market just as they want to do with cannabis yes 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 they are, they are so dead scared they have to be along because almost all <laughs> the antidepressants and anxiolytics are going to be out within 10 years yeah so yeah so there is is join or, or die <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're coming in here kicking and screaming. But uh, then again, you know, if they can get monopoly and maybe they can start getting... Exactly. Yes, and they can... And this is one of the threats, is that how are people going to do a monopoly of uh, something you can pick in your lawn in the autumn? 
No, yeah, but they don't like ayahuasca and mushrooms and stuff, but they would like stuff like LSD and yes. MDMA, uh, ecstasy. Yeah, but people are, people are developing psilocybin variants. In their basement? They, yes, no. Uh, the pharmacological experimentation is now, for example, they are experimenting on a psilocybin variant. One of the problems with psilocybin is that it, it gives you a process that may last six to eight hours. And it's very time-consuming for therapists to support someone for that long. So now they have developed a short-acting psilocybin compound, which may work just for three, four hours, which means you could do two clients per day rather than one. <laughs> Wow. So people are always experimenting, and for that kind of substance, you can get a license, you know, um, a special license. So people are looking to, because for an organic compound, you shouldn't be able to get a, a, a license unless you have developing um, some kind of a special release tablets or, you know, the, the pharmacological industry is always looking for ways to get the control and the... Um, the money from the business. Mm. Yeah, they are indeed. So uh, they are a threat to, for example, in the cannabis industry, they want to, not only do they want to have monopoly of it, but they also want to do GMO versions of cannabis. Oh, yeah. That's horrible. I'm going to have a show about that. But uh, before we move on, there's one super important thing we must explain, especially to people who are not very familiar with what we're talking about. And that's that drugs isn't just drugs. There's actually two main types, obviously three main types. There's psychedelics, which we are discussing today, which are examples of psychedelics, are mushrooms, cannabis, LSD, yep. ecstasy. There's others too, but th these are the most well-known. Ecstasy, of course, is MDMA. Uh, then there's the other type of drugs. I don't know the English term, but I hate those drugs. They are really damaging, and I don't see any spiritual value to them. And that's the, the chemical ones like uh, uh, amphetamine, meth, cocaine, heroin, yeah, yeah. those things. Well, I think... I think uh the MDMA is is an amphetamine. It's a mix, isn't it? It's both. Psychedelic. I wouldn't call it a psychedelic. It may be. It's primarily an amphetamine, but compared to the other amphetamines, you know, because I treat a lot of people with ADHD, and what you see with the with giving people amphetamines that actually facilitates emotional development and strength which is part of the reason people get better from trauma. Yes, it has many good things, but. Yeah, but MDMA, more than amphetamine or methylphenidate, seems to do something that is lacking in the psychedelics. It opens empathy. It opens compassion. It opens ability to embrace. No, no, no. LSD opens empathy. I mean, how many people haven't experienced telepathy on LSD? It was before MDMA came. That's what uh, lovers used. But I want to say, yeah. word from the street, because I remember, I remember when ecstasy became known in the public world. Uh, and they said, I don't know if it's true, maybe you can confirm or, or deny, but they said that ecstasy was a mix of amphetamine and LSD. That's how they developed it. That's how they discovered it. Okay. So obviously, it must have a psychedelic component if there's any truth to this. 
yeah. I don't know. So, but you, it's classified as as belonging to to the amphetamine. It is an amphetamine. It's an amphetamine. It's um, an, an amphetamine derivative um, and has a stimulant effect. Okay. But what is so special about uh, the MDMA more than any of the other substances is his ability to open the emotions, and and yeah. this is what is in in psychotherapy. You know, 80% effect of any psychological intervention is based on your opening your heart and showing yeah. compassion to yourself and others. And there is no substance at the moment that is as good as doing empathy than MDMA. That is, that, yeah, that's where it breaks, yeah. you know, the barrier. Yeah. No, I agree. But I would say that both LSD and mushrooms has a similar, not as good as uh, yes, MDMA. Yes, they do also open it, but not as much. And for, if, you, if we're talking about the people that are me, I tell, said it before, 10, 20, 30, 40% who don't do very well on psychedelics. Right, right. Then the MDMA addition may be the way to mm. overcome that boundary. One of many tools that may be needed for those who are resistant to the treatment. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, today it's very popular to microdose. Yes, very important. Mushrooms and LSD. Yes. And, and then it's not a trip, but it's, it's a very beneficial effect, especially for depression. Yes. So many. And I, I'm going to, uh, you, you're going to tell us your story. But I was just in the middle of educating people about the three types of drugs. So we have the psychedelics, we have the amphetamines, yeah. and then we have the alcohols, right? Yeah. Now, for the first time, in uh, now in the 2000s we've starting to get true genuine and honest reporting from the science world about drugs the propaganda the war on drugs has so-called war on drugs which actually was just a way for caa to manufacture to have control to have monopoly of it that's gone now and that means that uh, they don't need to put up the i mean there's still remnants like in norway and in saudi arabia I always compare, I always say, Norway will legalize drugs the day Saudi Arabia legalizes it. Yeah. <laughs> that's how bad it is. Yeah, yeah. But that's the moral bad heritage of the, you know, ignorance and, and morality. So we're starting to get true info. And one list that has made its uh, triumphant, uh, like a meme, rounds in social media is the scientific report i wonder if it was in england it came out first but it's i think it was in the lancet where they ranges drugs from a harm score yes. which are actually damaging and uh, let me test you do you remember which one was at the top as the most dangerous drugs that's obvious I think it's so much worse than everyone else. Let's say it's 10 to 100 fold worse than any of the medicine we're talking about. Yeah. Its name is alcohol. <laughs> That's right. It's not obvious. It's a, it's a shock for most people. I think it causes, it's the biggest, it causes the greatest social harm of any substance. There's nothing that compares to it. Obviously, we have, have an end of the spectrum drugs like heroin. Those who end in using it, they usually die. That's number two. Yeah, that's right. Heroin is number two in the damage list. But, but, but um, and that's more lethal. But alcohol obviously is also a, a social facilitator. It, it, it does a great of good, but it's, it, it, like most things, it's about moderation. Yeah. 
Like everything, it's about moderation. Yeah. Everything. So uh, I just want to say to people, uh, Google it. It's easy to find this list. Uh, alcohol, heroin and crack co cocaine and methamphetamine and cocaine are the five most dangerous. Then comes tobacco. Now, you would think yeah. cannabis... And you, can, yeah? and you can put further down coffee and then LSD and psilocybin is as far below coffee as heroin and alcohol above it. That's right, that's right. Uh, it's, it's, I was getting to that, but I want to say in the middle, yeah. you find stuff that people would think would be in the bottom, yeah. and that's like cannabis is in the middle. It's not at the bottom. Well, yeah. So GHB... It, because, the, yeah, it has an addiction potential. It hasn't got a high lethal level, but no, it no. certainly has got an, um, an addiction potential. And as, as I mentioned earlier, it can cause psychosis but it it can all, not cause trigger right no cause cause it can cause possibly cause it will trigger but may cause oh. but also uh, in a very small percentage but it also causes something that is called be kind of like a lethargy people lose all their drive they yeah they they become completely flat yes and i've seen a number of clients that have used heavily cannabis for a few years and their life is never the same they never they're like car without a petrol. There's no direction. There's no meaning. There's no yeah. drive. There's no nothing. Yeah, that's a classical. Uh, no wonder uh, the hippies loved it. And GHB, the so-called date rape drug, is also uh, next to cannabis. But then we come to the bottom, like you said. At the bottom, we have cut. Then um, under there, we have anabolic steroids. Yeah. Then under there, we have MDMA. Yeah. Under there, we have LSD. Then we have something I don't even know what is, buprenorphine. Yep. And then at the bottom, we have uh, yeah, mushroom. Buprenorphine, you mentioned. I wouldn't have put buprenorphine down there. I think I would put it way above coffee. I think it's it's an opiate, but it, you can't. It's a mixed opiate agonist and antagonist. So it has a, a both for and against the opiate receptor. So it's hard to abuse in high doses, but I think it can still... That's my view. I may be ignorant. I wouldn't have put it down there. Mm. Mm. Well, all, all uh, the way at the bottom is mushrooms. Yes, yes. I, I don't see I don't see um, ayahuasca anywhere, but I, I don't think... Can you call ayahuasca a drug, though? No, it's not addictive either. I think the no. issue with the mushrooms is that, first of all, it's not toxic. You can use it in almost thousand-fold dose and you're unharmed. Mm. You may have a bad trip, but you're, you're not, you're not going to die from it. Mm. And it does cause anxiety and and it brings up bad emotions for you initially. So it, you, you're more likely to run away rather than use it again. <laughs> so it, it is a heroic path. You don't play with it. You, you have to go with it with the purpose of facing your fears. That's right. It's not like taking opium and feel free of all your pains and aches. You have to feel worse before you feel better. That's right. That's right. And I would also emphasize that in this list, they distinguish between harm to others and harm to users. And yes. again, alcohol is on the top of both oh, yeah, heroin yeah. and alcohol. Yes, so, yes. so I always, fortunately, I never, almost never drink. I take like maybe a couple of wine glasses a year. 
And there's not even a moral or a spiritual reason for it. I guess it's just because my parents were not big drinkers. These things are often inherited, right? Yeah. So I'm happy about that because if you really think about damages to people you know, always alcohol is at the top. And heroin, of course. But now, I want you to tell us how you came into this field to begin with. Yes. It was a funny story. Just like you. Yes, just like you. I'm, I'm an extremist. Partly maybe like you because of family history. I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't dabble in anything. Mm. So I, I, I've always been like that. But about, I forget now, four or five years ago, I had a client, very intelligent, high kind of uh, high achieving client with bipolar illness, <clears throat> manic depressive illness. And he had been seriously depressed and on and off for work for a couple of years. And I had tried literally everything in my in my uh, <clears throat> toolbox to help him get out of it and didn't do anything for him. Mm. And then he said to me, Harold, your, your, your drugs are shit. I'm going to try something else. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, whoops, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I think I'm going to try psilocybin. And I said, okay, you keep me informed. He came to me for the next appointment a month later and the depression was gone. And I said, what? What did you do? And what he had done, he had been microdosing for a month and he stayed out in nature for a month and the depression was gone. Mm. And then I said, oops, I need to learn something here. (laughs) (laughs) So this started on me on, you know, if this is going to help clients so much, then I have to be informed. So I started reading the literature, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and as you mentioned earlier, there, there's a kind of a lay driven research initially to use microdoses, which is kind of one tenth, one twentieth of a, a treatment dose of psilocybin and before that LSD. And amazingly, this homeopathic dose, which causes no apparent effect, um, there's no trip, there's no nothing. You just take it every other day or every third day or We'll take it five days a week and skip to the weekend or whatever. It's seen... I, I hear you need a day in between to rest your brain. I don't know. Well, yeah, people are they're all kind of protocols. Yeah. But so some do five and two, one and three, etc., whatever. But but clearly for um, burnout, for PTSD, possibly ADHD, for depression, this seems to help. I think there are research that say it doesn't do anything but there are others that say so that it is still the jury is still out but from a kind of professional experience with clients it's see i have seen a dramatic improvement yeah with microdosis yeah i have high hopes because one of my biggest fears just to come clean and be a little little personal is to become uh, is dementia The reason I'm terrified of dementia is that I've been struggling with sleeping issues for so long. And uh, I read that that can be a causation for dementia. So I'm I'm, I'm screwed when I read, you know. No, no. Can I be personal? Yes, please. (laughs) The main reason for what we call late onset sleep disorder, which is relatively common. Mm. So it is the fact that as the evening progresses and things uh, become calm, the minds become active, and you're really in your element. 
And it's the time you write, you think through, your mind flies. But then maybe three, four, five in the morning, you need to go to bed because you need to be out by eight. Yeah. And then you're brainless until midday. And it causes a, a lot of people struggle with it. And they, because of it, start to do maybe night work or evening work, etc. But the main reason for this pattern is ADHD. Right. But but what I've been doing, like I, I can go like three or four days without sleeping, literally. Yeah. Uh, it's not healthy at all. And I read that a new research shows that uh, when we sleep, the brain is being cleaned. And it's if, one of the functions of, of the dream is to clear the brain. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like physically, not just uh, uh, psychologically. And if you don't clean your brain every night, uh, it can lead to decay and poison and everything. So this is why I've connected it to dementia. But maybe it's just my fear. But be that as it may, I said I saw studies now. First of all, these studies show that psychedelics, especially mushrooms, I don't know if they are allowed to experiment with LSD, but at least they are allowed to do it with mushrooms, show that mushrooms creates new uh, synopsis, synaptic pa patterns, yeah, yeah. connections in the brain, which yeah, yeah. is one of the reasons they think it's uh, curing depression. But now they also see that if you give it to demented people, it seems to be slowing down the decay of dementia because what happens with dementia, obviously, the brain is declining. But if you can force the brain to make new connections, that can kind of alleviate yeah. those that are, are dissolving or dying. Absolutely. So this is very promising in my book. Well, it's just one of many. I, I don't even know this literature, but, you know, as we get older, especially after kind of 65, 66, mm -hmm. You know, certainly after the age of 35, the whole body starts to deteriorate. Mm -hmm. But after the age of 66, it goes into fast mode of deterioration. And most people get chronic disorder every few years. But we know from um, research that while the brain is deteriorating at that age, if you have a lot of brain power, if you're highly educated, if you are good at exercising, but if you start learning something new, then the renewal of the brain is faster than its deterioration. Mm. So one of the ideas is that if you learn a new language in your 60s, mm. if you start learning new dance, you know, you are counterbalancing the deterioration of the brain. And psilocybin, like any psychological techniques, they are based on the touching the novel, the the, the, it's a new creation, it's a, a rediscovery, it's seeing things anew. It triggers the neuroplasticity, the renewal of the brain. Mm. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but, but what about the traditional stuff like doing axe, birds, puzzles, Sudoku? Well, stuff? I think the evidence is very poor in that area. And the reason is that once you've done the the puzzles for a few days or a few weeks is not novel anymore. You go into a routine. Mm. It is only if you go to a new place, learn a new word, new, learn a new exercise, see new people. It has to create a sense of novelty. Ah, interesting. No wonder old people love to go on, you know, world cruise and stuff like that. Yes, that's very good. That's what it renews your being. Yeah, meet new people, yeah. new places, learn something new. Right, right. 
you have to tell us about your work, your projects, and in general also what's going on in in the academic or scientific field with uh, drug research. Yes. How? Uh, which countries? Uh, are, uh, who are in the? Who are in the vanguard? Yes. Uh, what is being explored? Is there any? Is there any problems? Like, uh, are you being stopped by, like, you know, moral state or big pharma or even police? The police is the biggest incentive to criminalize drugs. It's actually the police. Well, I think we we have a bit of a peculiar uh, situation here. Uh huh. The police almost worldwide has stepped aside and is not really getting involved in in the psychedelics. Uh, because they are more or less focusing on on the more serious like the heroin etc and cocaine but um, wait a minute I, I have to I have to interject before you go on not in my country that's number one number two okay. in America not the federal police because the thing is if we leave the dr war against drug the police are terrified that they will lose remember the budget is based on drugs because of the since the 1980s right oh, yeah. so this is the problem but i think the the um, the dutch and the portuguese and the spanish yeah uh, decriminalized uh, drugs so you you're allowed to have them and use them you're not allowed to sell them this is the paradox yeah. but it, it dramatically reduced the problems caused by drugs so as we know from prohibitions in the uh, late in the kind of 1910 20 30 it really created a, a black market that not only produced these uh, the alcohol or whatever but pushed for its use yeah so it's empowered a dark world if you like mafia basically uh, so, so the war on drugs is what maintains the drug use yeah the damaging drug use and yeah, the criminalists yeah. uh, and uh, all the unhealthy stuff like crime exactly. and... but again people are fearful of letting go in iceland like in many other countries people are now looking towards decriminalizing these drugs to help do the thing you know, that the spanish and the portuguese managed to do but if we go to the to america where Obviously, at the moment, every university in the world is trying to do some novel research into psychedelics because it's not. Wait, wait a minute. Ca Canada has legalized it. What about Mexico? Do you know if they have legalized it? Um, I don't think it was delegalized. I don't think it was made criminal there, I, but I may be wrong. Yeah, it was always I, legal there. Yeah. But uh, half of America, maybe more than half of America, amazingly has legalized it or at least uncriminalized it. So I guess there's a lot of research going on there. I think it's only in Oregon that it's been allowed. Uh, I think there are other states that are looking into it. But what is exceptional is that the most restrictive organization in the world, which is the FDA, right. the Fe Federal Drug Administration, which is very strict on screening for the safety of drugs and to be convinced that they're actually helpful. Hmm. It made a statement now a few years back that it gave a green light for all research into psychedelics and mental health. Wow. So it's given a golden road. So they will facilitate and support uh, early research into psychedelics because they realized after a few studies that we are looking at a totally new era in mental health. The psychedelics, they, they look as they will transform the field. And what is most important is that um, over the last, especially the last 25 years, 
there's been a split between psychology and psychiatry. Psychologists do mainly therapy, and psychiatrists, they ask, how is your day? How many symptoms do you have? And you need that much of the medication. Mm. I am obviously dramatizing it a bit. <laughs> but with psychedelics, it's the coming together of medicine prescribed by doctors and psychotherapy. It is not just using drugs for fun. No. It's using the psychological tradition and uh, a new medicine to facilitate the treatment of the mentally unwell. So, so basically, back to shamanism. Back to, back to the wise way. Yeah, back to yeah. because one of the. Um, I was just reading an article yesterday, and, and it comes to the very heart of modern day society uh, because of the you as you we talked about Christianity and the old culture has gone away over the last two hundred years. We have lacked. The routine of going to church, the routine of being educated, in particular spirituality. We have a we used to have a kind of a place in the universe, but now there is no agreed worldview. And a lot of the young people, even middle-aged and old, have no purpose, they have no meaning. Mm. Life has no direction. Um, and this, you could argue, is the source of mental health problems. Yeah, especially in secular countries, this is true. Yeah. There's always religion, you know, for those who, but yeah. And, and the psychedelics seem to be the medicine for this. Mm. They, especially if, if you take the person from into the darkness, personal darkness, into the universal darkness, and allow him to experience the connection to nature, the all the consciousness of all, then the, he comes back full of meaning and purpose. And he starts to honor his body, his exercise, his food, his his fellow travelers. So it is, has a transformative effect. And even those who are atheists and have this experience, you know, two thirds of them come <laughs> with a spiritually I know. A based framework. I love it. So we're talking about, and, and sadly so far, the research isn't focused on this. The research is focused on the first step which is about honoring your darkness transforming it and healing it mm. so that it heals your 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 kind of basic uh, problems it's a, if you like a symptomatic treatment you are using it to treat your suffering but you're not using it to treat the underlying problem which is your sense of disconnected from nature man and the universe mm. i mean um it's um, it's a great thing, but I wonder, just like I'm curious about the effect it could have on so-called insane people, I also wonder, and of course there's no experiments of this, but maybe there, I mean, what I'm going to ask now has to have happened. So there may be reports, and maybe you are aware of it, but what is the effect if a child gets this? Do you know anything about that? I, I know, and I'm actually, I haven't seen any um, studies on, and that would be unethical to start early on. Of course, there's no studies, but there must yeah. be reports, there must be some information. Yeah, not, I am not familiar with it. I wouldn't expect anything different. The only issue is that, you know, if you look at human development, at least for healthy people, you wouldn't want to experiment with psychedelics until the ego has developed to a certain degree yeah. so that you don't interfere with the development of the person 
Obviously, if there are difficulties and serious illness, you could maybe look at it. But I think the issue is you need to be cautious because these medicines, they can have a profound effect. Yeah, but like like Paracelsus said, the only difference between toxic and medication is dosage. But I wasn't like thinking, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a child who is not traumatized and, and screwed up, if a normal child accidentally yeah. got some mushroom or some LSD, maybe it wouldn't notice it. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe it will have a mystical experience because there's nothing holding back on the connection right. with the sublime. But my point is, but my point is, the child is already almost not held back. It's just culture, and yes. right. So they are already yeah. connected. So maybe it's like, maybe it's like giving amphetamine to to HDAD people. Yeah. But I think this is the human development. I think we're all born as gods, and through experiments, we incarnate and we forget our roots, and we are traumatized, we are burdened, and as adults, we start to reclaim our source. Yeah. That's right. So you are doing very great work in your own country about this. Could you tell us a little about because Iceland, look, folks, if you don't know it, traditionally, if you look at the Nordic countries, we would say that the most libertarian or like life happy people would be the Danes. Yes. The Danes hasn't legalized weed, but in reality, it's been decriminalized there for you know, since the 60s, you know, Christiania, this famous place. So the Danes are the least stuck up, the least anal about this. I would expect them to be the first to legalize it. But you are doing great stuff over in Iceland now. What's going on there? Yeah, I think, well, Iceland has been on the front of health and well-being, I think, for the last 50, 60 years. So we are the oldest. We're also one of the happiest. <laughs> we, we are... Um, uh, women rights are the best in the world. And the craziest. Oh, yeah. And we still uh, <laughs> believe in the leprechauns. <laughs> and, and you were gambling with your economy. You know, you had these gamblers running the country for a while <laughs> before you cleaned up. Yeah, yeah. So I think we, there's, we, are, we are different, I think, but we've been doing pretty well. But I think um, we have been looking... Um, Obviously, here, like anywhere else, there's been a flooding of shamans coming from yeah. every country to teach all kinds of uh, mysteries from Mexico, from Colombia, from Peru, from Brazil. And, um, um, and as we know with all traditions, there's always risks that, um, as I mentioned earlier, all these drugs, they increase suggestibility. So if the teacher is not ethical, it can lead to problems, and, and we have seen that. Mm. So I think I have been pushing this, this group of people that I have been meeting that we need to come to some ethical standards and we need to make sure that if there are problem makers, that we intervene somehow. And so we have been looking at uh, informing the public and we've had uh, with the, we, with the, um, the lay mental health organization, we had a day on psychedelics where I was one of the speakers, as, as, as well as psychologists and uh, international speakers. I have tried to bring it to an annual medical conference, but they thought it was a bit extreme. But we're also planning a, a psychedelic conference, international one in January. But we are also been pushing the parliament to find a way of, of legalizing it. Um, 
and it's it may it's early stages, but it may be possible that this will be achieved um, in the next parliament. We, we, we will see. Is it true that the Pirate Party and the Greens are in your parliament? Sure. Because I think both of those groups would support it. Yes, I think there was a discussion, a kind of Green Road discussion two, three years ago that that uh, cannabis and psilocybin mushrooms should be um, sold um, in special shops. But I don't think they took it any, any uh, further. What about cannabis? That's still banned? Uh, there hasn't been any change so far, but I think there is this decriminalization um, uh, thing going on in the parliament. But I think they have tried it twice to put it past, but it hasn't been agreed. Maybe it will be agreed in the next parliament. Mm. I think people are, as you know, I make a joke of it, uh, that public um, officials in, in the um, ministries, their, their first principle is that make no change. Mm. Create stability. Mm. If you need to change, and we talk about it in Iceland, if you have to change, make sure that all these other Scandinavian countries have made the change before you do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> always. We are the same. We look to Sweden. Yeah. Have Sweden done it? Have Sweden done it? If not, exactly. okay, no, we're not doing it. Yeah, so, good thing. Good thing we did not do that for EU. <laughs> so, yeah, so you have this, I think, uh, this resistance to change within the ministries. But I think the politicians, they... They have the power, even though they don't often use it, to bring about positive change. But mm. we will see. The, the law in Iceland is such that it is actually the health minister who can decide what are the list of drugs that are illegal. So he can move individual drugs. And our, my view is that psilocybin, which is, can be just picked in, on your lawn in the autumn, um, shouldn't be illegal. It's, it's, it's certainly not addictive. It's certainly not toxic. And why should it then be? So I would argue that the law is illegal. Yeah. It, it doesn't stick with its definitions. So I think... That, especially especially when they allow the most dangerous and harmful of all drugs. Yes, to, yes. Yeah. yeah, but I think what really matters here is that there is so much evidence now. The last 10 years, there's been so many studies um, of, of the usefulness of psychedelics in benefiting... Uh, people for mental health or physical illnesses, for pain, for all kinds of trouble. So I think it's time to say, no, 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 we, we need to make sure that people have access to these uh, treatments that are helping people. And just go on to the medicine, you know, the research is massive now. But out of all these psychedelics, there are two medicines that are at the forefront in research. And the foremost is the, the ecstasy, the MDMA. Hmm. Now we already have finished the first, what we call phase three study. A phase three study is the final study before you apply to the FDA or equivalent drug administration to get the drug licensed. So for MDMA... But doesn't the demand require also meta-studies? Oh, lots of studies. Yeah, yeah. This is the final state. After the... Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, you, you first do animal studies, chemical studies, you know, all kinds. Then you do small clinical samples, individual studies. Then you do open studies, blind studies, and then you do multiple studies, and then you gather it together, and then you have the legalization. 
Hmm. Now, MDMA is on the final stage. Hmm. So we are looking at, hopefully... You, you mean for Iceland, right? No. In the, in, in, you know, obviously, when you go to research, it's international. Oh, wow. uh, but when it c comes to legalization, the Americans are going to be the first. So yeah. I think the FDA assumes that before the end of next year, MDMA is going to be legal. Wow. But that means uh, you have to have a prescription to get it at the pharmacy? Well, you can buy it illegally, but yes, you can get. Doctors are then allowed to use it with psychologists allowed to use it. And this will lead a transformation in the quality of health service. It will probably eventually be without the prescription. And, and this was used MDMA for PTSD. Yeah. MDMA may help with a lot of other things, including depression. But the other, other uh, psychedelic is the psilocybin that we've been mentioning. And, and just like LSD, it's been used for a lot of different things, but the COMPASS study, um, um, it was the MAPS um, that did uh, the MDMA study, but the COMPASS company, if you like, compassionate company, they have been doing a lot of the psilocybin studies, and they are now already into a phase three study on psilocybin for depression. So we are talking about maybe 2024 when it's going to go on the market, wow. assuming there's nothing new, because obviously the final studies are to look if there's any new uh, information of harmful effect of these uh, uh, medicines. So we need to make sure when they go on the market that first of all they work and secondly they are safe. So far both of these and certainly psilocybin is obviously safer than the MDMA. Uh, so we are, we are looking at just within a couple of years these meds are going to be a market first in the States but even you know internationally yeah. Once medicine are in phase three studies, doctors can apply for a compassionate leave to have access to this medication to treat their patients. So in fact, both these medicines should be available for doctors to treat non kind of um, clients that are not improving on normal treatments. So you could say we're already into the phase where doctors, mental health, uh, psychiatrists should have access to treat clients that are not responding to normal treatment. And in fact, these can be 30-40% of the population we manage. Mm. So, so there's been massive research, which is now coming to the final status. Very, very promising. But uh, you speak of this as if it's all about logic and rational and like everybody's just ignorant or afraid, don't forget that the most, especially when it comes to the politicians who makes the laws. Yeah, yeah. In some, I mean, one thing is Iceland, which is which is a small country where it's possible to actually move the needle, but especially in the big countries, the most influential uh, decisions are not made on 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 what is sensible. And I know and, and this is also in Iceland. I think. A lot of my colleagues, uh, the medical general, uh, members of the parliament. Yeah, but you, you, you're talking about biases. You're talking about bigotry and ignorance. I'm yes. talking about something else. I'm talking about the biggest uh, inhibitor to real progress is money and power. And yes. one of the reasons cannabis isn't all the way is precisely because it undermines the alcohol industry and the tobacco. Like the tobacco industry, and I'm going to have a show about this, folks. 
is one of the prime reasons that vaping isn't, you know, vaping should just be completely flooded on the world and it would kill tobacco. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But alcohol industry is terrified of cannabis, irrationally, because it's not true. Yes, and, yes. and then you have big farmers. We know, for example, in, we know, for example, in Canada that cannabis is already big business, is creating new jobs and businesses, yeah. etc. So tax revenue. It certainly is a threat to the alcohol business. Yeah, yeah. But but really, I, I'm not so sure because I don't think people will stop no. enjoying a glass of wine just because they have another option, you know. Yeah, no. So, and then you have uh, Big Pharma, of course, as especially the, the greatest obstacle to psychedelics. But before we uh, plug your projects, uh, we need also to quickly make a shout out for Ayahuasca. We have yeah. almost not mentioned Ayahuasca. Yeah. Uh, you, you've been you've been big on mentioning uh, uh, magic mushrooms and uh, ecstasy, but isn't it true that ayahuasca? Although you, you you would hardly call it a drug, it's an entogen. It's a holy plant. But yeah. I, I, I've heard that people like I have an ex girlfriend, lovely woman. She is uh, work as a therapist, and she tells me that they use DMT, yes. drug addicts oh, yeah. use DMT to cure their addiction. Ayahuasca. Yeah, I think, it's, I think there's been a lot of interest of drug addictions and all the psychedelics. <clears throat> I think it's all about what I mentioned earlier about the, um, the finding a sense of purpose, finding a sense of meaning. All the drugs are the same. I think the ayahuasca may be, there, there are researches like on religious experience on quite big groups. Um, if you compared all these drugs, they're all similar, except for ayahuasca seems to be slightly uh, better at uh, triggering a spiritual emergence, if you like, a spiritual awakening. And it's that spiritual awakening that is really a key, of not only because uh, addicts have obviously complex sources. On one hand, they have an addiction. But on the background, they often have ADSD and a lot of psychological trauma. Yeah. So they're always running away from their, uh, first of all, from their withdrawal symptoms, because the withdrawal symptoms, they, <clears throat> they bring back the pain of their past. And all the, uh, the psychedelics seems to facilitate. Uh, but again, we're talking early days, but there are researches going on to show that these are beneficial. Yeah, indeed. Okay, we're, we're on to the top of the hour. I guess we have six minutes left. Um, tell us about uh, your projects uh, that hopefully will move this to a new level. Well, um, ideally in Iceland, we would like to open a center with psychedelic services. I think the issue will be the, the difference between a medical point of view and a spiritual point of view. When will the, um, the, the skies become a shaman? <laughs> What are the boundaries between uh, a psychotherapist and a spiritual person? I think that's certainly for one. But um, mm. yeah, but obviously in Iceland we, we're just on the road like everywhere else. We're we're running an international conference. Um, we're even looking at a conference in, on um, a local conference on on the the role of psychedelics in ancient mysteries. Oh my! God. So we're we're kind of trying to cultivating. And the media here has been very strong in showing interest and, and 
demonstrating this in a positive light because just how I told you about my client who got better, mm. the, the media has been actually interviewing a number of, of individuals where the psychedelics have dramatically uh, made their mental health better. So tell us about these conferences. Uh, when, where, uh, yes. can uh, anyone participate? Yeah, it's psychedelics in Iceland. That's uh, in the middle of January. I think it's 13, 14. Is that like a professional, like like for health work? Yes, obviously. We, uh, this, the Psychedelic Association of Iceland is linked with the psychedelic. These are professional organizations with the equivalent in Scandinavia. And we are kind of trying to get the best of the best in the world to do it with us. Uh, so we, we're getting, hopefully, most of the attenders are going to be from abroad, but we're going to be pushing it. Obviously, Rick Dublin, who is um, who is the head of the uh, MAPS company that did the MDA studies, he's he's talking. Michael Pollan, who's who's both on Netflix now and a famous book, How to Change Your Mind. Yeah, they're going to be coming, and we're going to do kind of covering um, new research and and obviously the uh, what is the prospect of the coming years and what is the how how is mental health going to be in the coming years? So we're going to be also, and that's one of the kind of tactical reasons why we are having it in Iceland is try to educate both the public and the professionals of this right. wonderful opportunity that is ahead of us, so that we can we can um, try to shift the blocking powers and, as you said, ignorance and bigotry and all that. Yeah, yeah. So. So uh, what's the date and what's the website? Uh, I think it's psychedelics.com. Uh, psychedelics Iceland. Let's see. In one word? I'll, I'll double check. Uh, yeah. and, and the date? I think it's 13th, 14th uh, of January. Okay. Now, the other one I sound interested in, you said the local one. What, what, what's the date there? Oh, it hasn't been set, but it's aimed for for um, for um, November. So that's within. Um, uh, I'm sure the listeners may uh, are familiar with the history of the Theosophical Society, who um, you could argue was the one who broke the stronghold of of uh, the Church on Western society and brought in both mystical ideas from. The Middle Ages, but also from Hinduism and Buddhism, and they also challenged science. You know, materialist yes. science. Yeah, but yeah. bring in the spirituality aspect of things. Mm. Um, now, within the Theosophical Society, we are obviously always trying to have dialogue between different. I think the Theosophical Society is different from many other spiritual or religious or semi-religious groups that we don't have a dogma. As we say, we share. Quests. We share questions, but not paths. So we're going to have a a, a, a weekend, a three day workshop on the um, the mysteries and psychedelics. Okay, I'll plug it uh, when we get more details. I'll yeah. I'll make sure to to plug that. Yeah. Okay, we're running out of time. So um, uh, did we get to cover everything? I think so. I think it's uh, just uh, enough to inspire. Okay. Yeah, let's hope. I think it's plenty. This is, this is a bottomless field. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. I think it's just, I think we're just, uh, you know, just go, going on the surface. If there are any specific questions, we can look at them in, 
in in specifics uh, and deepen it if you, if you have any idea we could do uh, ayahuasca we could san pedro we could do psilocybin uh, we could there are a lot of things but i think this is the main thing okay it sounds very great uh, i wish you luck with all this and um, thank, thank you so, so much, much for coming on and educating us uh, dr erlandson thank you Alan. Yeah. very good yeah 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 Okay. okay, great, great stuff, stuff man. man. Very good. So far today, I am reminiscent of uh, Terence McKenna's famous saying that psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally lay down models of behavior and information processing. They open you up to the possibility that everything you know is wrong. And we can't have that when you're supposed to march in lockstep. Uh, I mentioned in the show today so-called handsbane. I think the professional term is hyosiamus niger which we also mentioned in the show what you should know about Vikings. Um, and it's interesting that this very, very old plant, culture historic plant, which at least goes back to the 1100s in our country, but uh, there's even um, it was even discovered in Denmark from year 100, the earliest dis- known discovery in the Nordic countries. It has been found in many excavations, And we know that in the medieval ages, both nuns and monks were cultivating it in the cloister gardens. And we also know that in Europe, during the Catholic hegemony, many of the interesting traditions and uh, sciences were underground, yes, but even within um, the monk orders. And we know that for example, the Cistercians, who is connected to the Knights Templars, of course, were very, very adept at, um, you know, cultivating herbs and studying it for different uses. Um, of course, medicinal, which, by the way, also henbane has been used as, and probably a whole host of others too. I mean, um, I, I usually refer to the Cistercians as the good guys in Catholicism, as opposed to, let's say. Um, the Dominicans, the hounds of God, who <laughs> is behind the Inquisition. And of course, even worse manifestations like Opus Dei, the insane fascists who is infiltrating Catholicism and trying to hijack it. But, um, but Hanbane, this specific herb that I've been talking about, the medicinal effects, as well as the narcotic effect on the nerve system has been known since the since antiquity was even practiced in um, the uh, babylonia which smoked it to counter toothache <laughs> fishers even used it to uh, bake bread of it throwing it throwing the crumbs in the water and so the sedated fishes would float up <laughs> but in big doses, it could be used to poison people, I mean murder by poisoning. Uh, but the oracle in Delphi, as well as the berserkers among the Vikings, uh, has been, um, experts think, has used it to intoxicate themselves. Now, um, 
DMT, we, we didn't nearly talk enough about DMT today. And uh, But it's such a huge uh, topic in itself that we may return to it in its own show. But I just want to say also that despite ayahuasca being the most prominent tool associated with DMT triggering, uh, it's not just limited to that. I mean, that's traditionally for, for the Americas, right? But there are said to be DMT-triggering substances used also here in, in the West. And so um, I just don't recall uh, the details right now, but but it makes sense because it's, because it's essential in mystical traditions to die before you die. And how can you practice that if you cannot go into that state of a mind that happens at the death when DMT is exploded in our brains. So it's a very, but of course it's being abused too. Uh, people smoke it for um, trips, just for recreation, but um, it's not possible to get addicted to it. And I also think abuse of it, at least that's what they say, will uh, reduce its effect over time. But anyway, we could go on for hours about this huge topic that is psychedelics. And today we were just browsing some basics. We'll uh, probably return to it soon enough. I'm going to have, like I said in the show today, a show about cannabis and especially how uh, the more political aspects of it, like how they're trying to ruin it by... GMO and, and the battle of the, the big pharma to, to monopolize it. But like uh, Haraldo said, I mean, how can you mon monopolize something that grows free in nature? So that's a problem. But there are ways, you know, they can outlaw the natural versions and only accept manufactured versions, for example. I mean, there's no limit to how far the bureaucracies will go to maintain oppression. But Let's look at this from the bright side. With all this new knowledge that's being accumulated, the future is rather bright in many aspects when it comes to mental health. And remember, everything is connected to everything. So if there will be a breakthrough in the mental health sciences, that will affect other areas too, like, for example, uh, prison and crime, I and mean, especially places like America, which is just one big prison, uh, 10 times worse than China when it comes to how it treats its own population. And they are in dire need of, of acute mental health reforms, and, and this may just be a godsend solution. Stay tuned, and let's see what happens. Now, before I leave you, let me remind you that there are some new practices here at the forum now. We are not announcing new shows on social media anymore, at least not categorically. The only way to stay in the loop of when we release new shows on our website to our subscribers of our website or new shows to the public, either as audio at the podcast platforms or our channel at any of them, or as videos at the various video platforms like YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey. So the only way to know these things now is either to sign up at our Telegram channel. It's called um, Forum Borealis Updates. Or you can sign up to our newsletter. Once a month or every second week, we will send out updates 
they won't be in real time. In Telegram, they will be in real time, but the news mail will be like when you get uh, it, you will see like these are the, let's say, the two or three or four updates that happened since the last mail with links, of course. Uh, so that way you will stay in the loop. And hopefully this can clear up some of the confusion of where to listen to us, which shows are really new. And because, we, you know, we have different scheme, release schemes for different outlets. And there's the clock. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your reviews. I've been your host, Al, reminding you that psychedelics occasionally causes psychotic behavior in people who has not taken them. Be seeing you. number one.